HavanaDeprived.com is proud to present Top 8 Magic Podcast with Michael J. Flores and Brian David Marshall. Brought to your ears thanks to FaceToFaceGames.com. Hello, Brian David Marshall. Hello, Michael J. Flores. I feel like deja vu. What do you mean? Like we've done this before. We have. Several hundred times. It's so, but it's so distant in the past that um, you'd have to uncover you know, many stone tablets to, uh, to get to such an experience. This is Top 8 Magic Podcast, also on Mana Deprived, also on Fetchland. <laughs> that's, that's a musical version. <laughs> okay. All I'm, kinds I'm, of stuff I'm, going on. I'm, I'm down. I'm down. So... There's a lot, of, a lot of magic stuff to talk about, but, like, what... Let me ask you quickly, like, I just posted something on Fetchland about, like, the three shows I've been watching. Yeah. yeah. So the three shows you posted about were Mr. Robot. Which is awesome, and everyone should watch it. Red Dragon, which is the last implementation of Hannibal, right? Yeah, it's the last six episodes of Hannibal. They're doing the, the, the Red Dragon with, novel. With Gillian Anderson's in it, right? Gillian Anderson's in it, but she's tangential. She was mostly in the lead-up episodes. She may be relevant, but she's not in the... Like, they're... So the first twenty odd episodes of Red Dra- of Hannibal over the first two and a half seasons are just wildly divergent from the books. They change around timelines. They change around characters. Characters get shot in the face that don't get shot in the face in the books. People get eaten by pigs that don't get eaten by pigs in the books. All sorts of crazy stuff happens. But then they get to the Red Dra- the point of Red Dragon. Red Dragon's the first book where Hannibal Lecter was introduced. Wait, so does Red Dragon predate the movies? Yes. So so they so they made Manhunter as an adaptation of the Red Dragon yes. book. Yes, yes. And then Silence of the Lambs, though, was a movie first and he adapted it into a book. Is that what No, happened? the Silence of the Lambs book came out. They made that into a movie. But it was it like an airport book? Like it was no, like it was a, a huge bestseller. It was like... Airport books can be huge yeah, bestsellers, I mean, it was, Brian. But it was, I own a copy of Willow, for example. <laughs> and I think I mean, there our, was a Blade our, Runner Our adaptation. good friend Brandon Sanderson is often <laughs> signing books in airports. I mean, um, Brandon Sanderson with his many Infinity Blade novels. No, the um, the the move. It was it was a huge it was a huge book, and then it was a big deal when the book got optioned to be made into a movie by Jonathan Demme, who just released uh, one of the worst bombs of the year in Ricky and the Flash with Diablo Cody writing it. I've never even heard of this movie. It's, a, it about? it's Meryl Streep. Oh, is that the one where there's like, like Meryl she, Streep as a rock star? Yeah. yeah. It's by the same director of Silence of the Lambs. And it's by the writer of Juno? Yes. I read her book about being a stripper. Yeah. Was it as bad as her movies? I liked it. Oh. Okay. I mean, it was about being a stripper. Yeah, oh, this okay. is like well within <laughs> the bands of things sure. that I'm likely to like. So, um, yeah, I was like, I wanted to buy that book. And my wife was like, do not buy that book. I didn't want to have a copy of that book. <laughs> But then when ebooks came out, yeah. I just downloaded the hell yes. out of one of those onto my original Kindle. Nice. <laughs> black nice. and white Kindle. And I read the hell out of it. So. And it was like a black and white yeah. photograph of her when she was younger, I guess. Yeah. But anyway, you were talking about I was saying, Red so, Sil- so Silence of the Lambs came out. Um, like Thunderbreak Regions and it was or Thundermaw Hellcats or Stormbreath. It was the big, that was the big high profile that, that's where, like, Anthony Hopkins played Dr. Lecter for the first time. Originally, it was played by Brian Cox in Manhunter. Um, you said Cox. Yeah. Off again. Uh, and then the movie was huge. And then they eventually remade Red Dragon. 
as Red as Dragon. As Red Dragon with uh, with Ed Norton. I've seen that. As Will film. Graham. Well, and the and it's it's like a isn't Aslan or somebody the not Aslan the other one who's exactly the same as him. Is plays a plays a the murderer right? Red Dra- the the great Red Dragon. Yeah, it's like some famous. It's, guy. it's Ray Fiennes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Him, I always get him confused with. Aslan slash Taken slash, <laughs> you know what I mean? Liam Neeson. Yeah, they're the same. Really? <laughs> I, yeah, I get confused all the time. Well, anyway, but uh, so anyway, this the, the Hannibal show came out and it like set out to tell all the backstory of the Will Graham Hannibal relationship, and they played around with timelines and they did all stuff. But as they get to the last six episodes of the show ever, unfortunately. They're just doing this really super faithful adaptation of the Red Dragon novel, and it's great. So it's like Game of Thrones, but faithful. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. So, uh, and then the third, the third TV show that you said you like. Show me a hero. Show me. I haven't seen that one yet. So it's David Simon who made The Wire. The Wire and, and Treme. Treme, which I love. I'm obsessed with Treme right now. Really? I thought it was boring. I love it. I mean, I I, I do. I understand that it's boring. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like nothing significant ever happens. But I love that about the show. I feel like their their problems. You might not like Show Me a Hero. Then, by the way, it's not that their problems are not significant. And I mean, of course, people's everyone's problems in everyday life are significant, right? That's just the experience that you're living. But they're like insignificant, and then they have no ramifications when something happens. Like, oh, I lost my restaurant. I will now be a pop-up chef. Like, it's just, like, the next episode, you know, it's just, like, all this tribulation that you had in the previous episode is just, like, evaporated. To me, it's not, it's not hopeful so much as just badly constructed. That's, like, that's how things happen in real life. Oh, my comic book got canceled. I guess I'll write for Daily MTG. Like, (laughs) that's that's how life works. that's you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's just how life works, right? I guess. That was very funny. <laughs> Is uh, the Captacular B-Sides on on Marvel Unlimited? I don't know. I I, I'll check it. It almost certainly isn't. Because and then I will put it on What's Free Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> you should read the Craptacular B-Sides. Uh, so, anywho. So... You put that up in Fetchland. Yeah, I but, liked it. So, so that's the three shows. Like, I gotta tell you, Brian, you're not being very faithful to the SEO model, though. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that was nothing not a, SEOable about no, this no, column I, at all. I understood that. I, Listeners, don't just erase that in your head. You didn't hear it. It is not. Yeah, I realized it wasn't, but I just wanted to talk about. Like, yeah. I realized there was just like all this stuff I was watching that I'm really loving right now, and that I think is sort of under the radar for a lot of people. And, like, apparently everyone is watching Mr. Robot because whenever you say anything about it, they're like, oh, I thought I was the only person watching well, Mr. So Robot. I'm a little annoyed. You know, Osub made a comment. He said he was disappointed in us that we weren't recapping Mr. Robot. Um, and... That's my bad. I knew I knew Mr. Robot was... I watched it from the first episode. I was like, be I should definitely recap this. So, but then I was away for, like, two weeks and I didn't want to start. I started watching it this week, but only with episode two because episode one is not not up anymore. It's up. Where? It's on usanetwork.com. Oh, okay. I guess I could watch it there. But, so I was thinking, like, maybe we could catch up with the last episodes, like, next week, right? It's... So, just watch it. It's yeah, but, so I mean, I, I'm just talking about catching up for putting something on Fetch. I think... So, I think... Do you think we have too much TV content right now? It's not that... I mean, I watch a lot of TV, see, Michael J. I feel like it's not that we have too much TV. I think that it's just we don't have enough of other stuff. Like, this podcast will go up, and that will counterbalance all the actually quite frankly excellent TV coverage that's on it. <laughs> this is a because 
it's weird, you know, my wife is telling me, you know, on Facebook and stuff, she's getting comments from like, big game designers and developers, like Devin Lowe's commenting on this, or like, Brian Call's just like, I just, I adored this True Detective recapping. He's and, doing a great job. And uh, uh, Osip has consistently said that the, the True Detective recaps were more entertaining than the episodes themselves. Low bar, though. Don't take, you know, you gotta. <laughs> I liked you, it. You gotta I, take I, that I, with I, a grain of salt. I liked this season. Oh my God. I, I didn't hated see the it. first season. Why? Did you really? I hated it. What is wrong with you? Like, so many things. Okay. Like, I'll, like, uh, I could, do, I, do you have an hour? We can talk about it. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, on another case. I think it was started by how I was raised. Yeah. I think like that. Let's let's start with that. Yeah. Like I was taught to always clear my plate. Yeah. Were you told that uh, you would your the attractiveness of your wife would be determined by the absence of grains of rice on your plate? No. No. My friend Tony got that growing up. Really? Yeah. He said it was like some uh, Asian tradition. I ended up with a very attractive wife. I don't think we had anything to do. Did you eat all your rice? Yeah, I mean, I still do. I, lo- I love rice. Well, then that's why. You I'm were like fine. A, you I'm were like good. a rice queen. You were good. That's, that that's not what a rice queen is. <laughs> I don't know. Kibler, <laughs> Google it. <laughs> Wait, is that Kibler, comma, Google it? Or no, no, Kibler just Kibler, Google it. Oh, okay. Do you know what Kibler, Google is, right? I do know what Kibler, Google is. I thought it would be funny if you were telling Kibler to Google it, because then he would just Kibler, Google it. All right, Kibler, Kibler, Google it. All right. So... A day or two from now, when you see Brian Kibler put up on Twitter, what is a rice queen? <laughs> You'll know where that came from. So, when I think of Brian Kibler, I think of the first of the first uh, Kickstarter I ever backed, which I backed for a ridiculous amount of money. I thought it was like charity or something at the time. Yeah. But then I went back and I looked at all the Kickstarters that I backed this week because there was an announcement that Emergence Genesis. Right? Yeah. Which I also backed on, which is, that's how I came back to looking at all my Kickstarters. Yeah, yeah. So I also backed that, and that's available. Do you, do you want to talk about Emergence Genesis? Sure. You can go to, um, or you can go to urbanislandgames.com. Yeah. We'll just put a link in the Yeah, we'll put a link notes. in there. But there's, there's a, uh, you can, you can still back the game. You can still, like, just sort of. Well, you can still back it? You can still, like, you can still get a copy, essentially, of the game for, and, and. The backer and price. Some back, yeah, the backer you price. You guys raised a good amount, like. Yeah, okay. 25000 yeah. or something? Yeah, we did. I mean, we, you know, we're going to have copies printed. We're going to get copies through the store. We just, we're making arrangements. Everything's shipping Friday. Friday? Friday. I don't do this very often. Shit, man. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I mean, from Friday shipping, it's literally coming from China. So that takes a long oh, time. Oh, from China. So, you know what else comes from China? What's that? Matt Wang. And he, he was he was involved in the construction of he was. of uh, of emergence. So you, Matt Wang, and and Anthony Conta were the Conto. main people. Anthony who, on who it. writes continuity on the Fantasy site yeah. now. So Anthony's a really uh, talented game designer. Has a lot of really interesting. He just fun. decided he wanted to design games one day, right? Yes. And he just went out and designed a bunch. Just went out and designed them. Uh, his, his fun employed is his first game, or his first major game. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, that's actually been blowing up for him. I think that that's going to end up being. Like, I bet you you see that in like you know mainstream stores pretty soon. That game's been exploding for him. I want to decide. I want to be something. Like, I want to decide. I want to be American Ninja Warrior champion. You have decided that already. What have you done to accomplish this? It's. A, I've only had one year go by. I gave myself two years to gear up. But I got to tell you, I think I. I think, I'm in worse I think you're a big now. dog. I think you're a big dog here, Mike. I mean, 
How about we just get up the warp wall? I don't know. Maybe if I could do a pull-up. That, that's like Could you do the salmon plank or whatever salmon that is? Salmon ladder? Salmon ladder. God, no. That's yeah. not on my list. I just want to get up the warp wall, actually. Okay. Because you don't have to try to do the salmon ladder unless you qualify from the from the first round. Okay. And you don't even have to get up the warp wall depending on how bad other people do. Okay. Also, I'm going to be above 40, so I might just get in on the, like, on, like, the over 40 charity, charity do they, slot. Do they have a charity they slot? They do have a charity slot for over 40, but some of the best competitors are over 40 now, yeah. so. They're, like, really good. Over 40 and weigh under 150 pounds, right? Like, uh, well, uh. You well, see a lot of really, like, it, it Guys. So the guys who are like super good from Japan are all like 130, 135 pounds. But the American competitors are not that like they're typically much taller, so you can't. I watch. I watch. I watch. Like randomly watch some the other yeah. night, and uh, some guy 140 pounds just like tore through that course. It, it depends, right? Like the guys who are like six six, they're not going to be 140. Right? Yeah, no, of course not. So the the thing about that sport is very interesting. Being really light is advantageous because of the of all the the finger weight things. Like you can only use your fingers for for certain stuff. Be, you can't even get a full hand grip yeah. on, on some so like being super light means that the, you can only get your hand to be so strong right so versus like your arm muscles or your how much weight you can squat and stuff like that so those guys have a huge advantage in those but then obviously other people have a huge advantage from just being tall or strong right, right? so right. Like you could be like the best i noticed that it's balanced like that because there's somewhere you like have to like shimmy hands and feet yeah through a passageway and if like you're too short so there's actually uh, there's a huge movement in developing techniques for people who are smaller to do that. But when Casey Catanzaro, actually, is the first woman who got through a qualifying course last year, no one thought she'd be able to get through the spider jump, and she was not able to get through right. the spider jump. And she's like, well, probably, regardless of sex, right, she might be the most talented competitor they ever had, you know, and, like, she's just not tall enough to get through it. But then they showed in a lot of tryout videos this year, like, people who are, like, 5'3 or whatever figuring out how they can beat that challenge. And they do kinds of crazy stuff. Like, if you jump far enough, you can carry them off of, like, two different walls before you fall and then stabilize yourself in a narrow part, narrower part. Or they show stuff where people who are, like, 5'3", like, doing stuff backwards and getting into on crazy angles. They're very serious about this. They're, like, the kind of people who, in another context, would just sit there and play a mono-red beat-down mirror match. Well, I, I do love, I mean, as you watch it, and you see people talking about, like, the dojos and yeah. It's like basically like neutral grounds of insanely fit people, but they're fit in a particular way, right? Right, fit. No, no. Who are right? Who are working on this? These very specific obstacles. Yeah. To train. So yeah, there's this guy Sam. The reason I said like over forty, there's a bunch of people like this guy Sam San, who's just like a trainer in San Antonio. Oh yeah. He's like one of the best guys. He's like 47 or something, and he just like makes the young folks look horrible by comparison. And then like there's this guy like Travis Rosen who's who's over forty now, he's probably the best American. He can do he can do two rungs at a time on the salmon ladder, which is crazy. <laughs> like at light speed, he can do two rungs at a time. And like, you know, in the in like the America versus everybody else thing, they, they picked him to climb the rope. And like there's these guys who are like twenty years younger than him on the team. Yeah. And they were like, No, nah, this is the guy who climbs the rope. He's just a monster. And so I I, I think, you know, a long life ahead of me. Maybe someday I'll get down to 100. I, I think I was last 130 pounds when I was 11 years old or something. So probably not going to get all the way down there. But I think I think I could just hobble my way through and not kill myself at some point. But I mean, right now, I'm doing too good at magic to, to come off and focus on magic. So, so yeah, we, have, we haven't talked about your pro tour. I, yeah, so uh, I finished in 27th place which is two off of the worst because 25th place was $1,000. So there's so many things to complain about, right? Yeah. 27th place, man, it was the worst. But you know what? 
uh, I was one idol on trigger out of maybe making top eight. That's also awful. Right. Right. So uh, a bunch of people, uh, two people got in top eight with four losses. Yeah. And yeah, including the winner of the Pro Tour. Yep. Playing basically the same deck you're playing. A slightly worse version of my deck, yes. <laughs> uh, and I had five losses. So four losses and five losses are and a lot of difference there. No. And I definitely missed an idol on trigger at the end of day one that definitely cost so me the game. Uh, in a favorable matchup. And I was just like, here's the thing. I was in second to last round, text feature match against Even Fluck. My losses in this Pro Tour were absurd, by the way. Andrew Cunio, Even Fluck, myself, <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, Jerry Thompson and Frank Karsten. So I lost to myself, three Platinums, and Jerry Thompson. So, uh, which is pretty good. And my win rate against Platinums and Hall of Famers was excellent overall. Actually. Yeah, it's not. It's not like you were beating up on on uh, on, no. on slackers. You beat I, Sam Black. You beat... Uh, I beat Andrew in the comeback Andrew, two rounds later. You beat later. Brad Nelson to yep. win your draft pod. I did. On day two. That uh, was pretty yeah. exciting. I put the... I, uh, I beat Ben Stark in a limited match. Uh, <laughs> to send Ben to 0-2. Yeah. Which is pretty insane. So so, so you ac you actually learned... So you went 5-1 in limited. Your, yep. your loss, you had that first round loss in limited. Yeah, I'm telling you, I think it was a ring rust loss. Like, I just had not played in the Pro Tour in nine years, and my first round opponent... Is one of the best players on the tour, most consistent guy probably on the tour. Actually, by win percentage, he might be the most consistent player right now. He's, he's been he's actually been ridiculous. The number of top twenty-five finishes he's posted over the last couple of years, including this past pro including tour. this past pro tour, is just yeah. staggering. And and obviously, platinum level pro, world's competitor, and my friend for nineteen years. Yeah, Andrew Cuneo. And that's like like why could I not get like some rando as my first round opponent? I'm like, Andrew gives me so many critiques of what I could have done better after my match. I'm just, like, ground into the dirt already. Like, you know, I know a bunch of stuff I could have done different. This is ring cross. And then second round, it's not like it led up. I played against Ben Stark, who taught me how to play the format, basically. Platinum level pro Hall of Famer, second round, which I was able to win on a mulligan to five, by the way. And, uh, and then, you know, I, I, I won my last round. And then second day, my second draft pod was, like... Gabriel Nassif, Paul Rietzel, Gerard Fabiano, Brad Nelson. Brad Nelson. I mean, it was like, it was like all murderers. And I 3-0'd it. It was awesome. I was like, oh my God, how am I going to, how am I going to survive this pod, win or not, right? And Chapin looks at my pod and goes, Mike, all constructed players. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, Gabriel Nassif, Brad Nelson. These guys can't even shuffle a forty-card deck. Boom, boom, boom. Brad, Brad no, I mean, Gabriel Nassif has posited that he has the best round four match win percentage in the history of the Pro Tour. Because he's so bad at limited. He's so bad at limited, and then he gets the play. By the way, Gabriel Nassif has won a limited Pro Tour. I, so, just in case you were wondering, he's won a limited Pro Tour. But yeah, it was good. And then I, I had a winning record in, in, in standard. But I, I, I so anyway, a text feature match against Even Flock. In the second to last round on day one, and OMC's doing the coverage, and he literally wrote in the coverage, I don't know how it's even possible for Mike to lose game one. And I, I mean, I did my best Craig Jones impression, I just played to draw a burn spell to win a mountain on top of my deck. One one card deeper would have been, would have been Stoke the Flames, and I, I'm on the play, he won the flip. If I won the flip, I probably would have won, right? Uh, game two, I won on turn four. Game three, he just, 
gets me with a third turn reclamation stage. He, he had two, to be fair. I thought he only had one. I looked at his deck list later. Yeah. Two. If it's any other card than the reclamation stage on turn three, I think I blow him out because he got my idol on. And then later I I searing blooded it, so I kind of got him back. But then when he rallied, he got it back and he killed my next idol on, and I only had two blockers. My remaining blocker was Zergo, so then he put all of his guys into his Nantuka husk and killed me. If I'd been able to live through the turn, I actually probably would have been able to burn him out. So, like, that one reclamation stage was worth at least... 100 points? I mean, <laughs> it would... I mean, for me, it might have been worth $15,000 or something. Right. So, so, uh, so I'm, like, super in the dumps, and I'm, I'm actually trying to psych myself up in the last round. And I'm like, just don't throw this away. You're X and 2. You're doing great, right? And I knew that I had lost my last round. And so... I lose a super close one. I kept a, I kept a one-land hand, which is actually what you do. I, I had a one-drop and a Titan Strength, and I'm like, I gotta keep this hand. It's weird, it didn't develop, and then I flooded. And the game was actually pretty close. I got him to nine. For a game where I, where, where I didn't draw my second land, I was like pretty competitive. Sure. Um, but then in game two, I, I literally just missed an Eidolon trigger on the second turn of the game. I reviewed, he drew all four Rhinos, right? All four. And I was just like, kind of like kicking myself. I'm like, oh, all four rhinos, are you kidding? But I looked at the life total. At the point that he played the second rhino, he's on two life. And, you know, we could have at least gone to turn game three and my deck's pretty good against Abzan. Right. It's not, it's not like a slam dunk win or anything, right. but my, I'm pretty good. Um, so, you know. So let me ask you something. Because, I mean, you, you don't get a lot of opportunities to play in the Pro Tour, right? This was your first Pro Tour back playing in, what? Nine years? Nine years. Speaking of which, I got my... I have to do this thing by the end of the week so I can play on the next Pro Tour. Um, so you, you talked about the idea, like, you know, that you're I mean, a little a little tilted going into the last round. And, like, one of the things... I mean, I think you see it also when you watch, like, the best players in the game. You know, Andrew Cuny is a great example of someone who's, like, very dispassionate win or lose, right? Like, he gets done with the match... And, like, he won, but he's like, hey, Mike, let's talk about some of the things you could have done differently. Yeah. Like, do you think that, like... No, he was trying to be real diplomatic no, no, about no, it. No, no, He's like, I'm not trying to rip you down. Right. I want you to do well. Just right. think about I'm not these saying things. he was. But I wasn't taking it the right way. I was like, look, I know I lost, blah, blah, blah. You know, it just... It's not that I didn't want to listen to him. It's like, you I just, just... couldn't. So, going to the last round, I'm telling you, emotionally, I just... Here, here's the thing, just not to make big excuses or whatever. I like other stuff going on in my life that were... That were distracting me like a lot like going into the process I actually had a very poor mindset going into the process it was stuff that was largely out of my immediate control sure and like you just can't zero those things as much as you try to train yourself sure honestly if it had occurred like a week and a half earlier I would have had a completely different just open like baseline emotional state going in but I'm telling you at the end at the end of that first day I knew I had lost and I was just thinking to myself I'm like what can I do about this and I'm like I guess I have to hope he chokes is the only thing that I could think of because I know I'm not going to make good decisions. And so I just like thinking, 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 like, how do I control this? How do I control this? And the answer was, I couldn't. Like, I just, I didn't have it in me at that moment. And I, it's funny, after the, after day one, I'm just like, I go back to the room. I'm like, ah, I'm like so grumpy, like sitting around for like an hour. And then I'm like, you were, you were likened to Gargamel by yeah, Marshall so, Sutcliffe. And I come out, I'm like, oh, I'm actually, I'm hungry. And I go back, I see Marshall on the street. He's like, Mike, great job today. I'm like, yeah, great job, man. Like a freaking Gargamel, like you're saying. He's like, no, you did a great job. And I was like, upset. He's just trying to be nice to me, you know? And it's so funny. I talked to him more. I was, my head was in a better place the next day. 
And you pointed out, like, I just didn't eat on day one. Yeah. And Marshall says, of all the things that you've written and all the things you read over the course of the years, you fell for stay hydrated. <laughs> one, and I'm like, I'm actually, I'm like, you know, you have to renew your, your sugars or whatever over the course of the day. And I mean, I don't know what it was. I just didn't. I guess I didn't feel hungry over the course. I think I'm maybe, I think it's weird because if I go play in a local tournament, I went and played in a game day tournament two weeks ago. I had like three bars and a bag of nuts with me. Like, and I made sure to eat and drink like Red Bulls and stuff in between rounds. I just, just off my routine at the Pro Tour, I think I was just like so, oh my God, I'm back in the Pro Tour. Right, because on saying- day two, I actually did everything right. Like I made sure I had snacks. I ate every, every single round. I ate or drank something. Like all this stuff, and I played very well on day two for the most part. So that, that I mean, that's kind of my, my yeah. point is that the scarcity of the opportunity, like, does that make it harder to stay on top of like your emotional state where you're like, where like if you're if you're gold, I'm not even saying yep. platinum, you're gold, you're qualified for every pro tour next year. Yep. You know, and you go to you go to an event and you screw up one match. Yep. It's not as. Uh, cataclysmic. So I'll tell you this: on day two, I get through my first draft pod. Like obviously, over going three zero at the pro tourism is a reason to be overjoyed. I'm five one over on limited. You're, you're also on a five zero heater and limited at that point. Yeah. So I'm like, and I go in, and then I get a feature match in the fourth round of day two. I sit across from Jerry. I know that Jerry's playing my worst matchup. He wins the role. I can tell you my emotional state was that moment. I'm like, I've already lost. I'm gonna play my best, but I, but like this. If, like, this game's already done. Like, this match is already done. I have to worry about what I'm going to do next. Is literally what I'm thinking about. And we're, I was just, like, having banter with Jerry, and I'm like, you know, I just won my last draft pod, and there wasn't a huge percentage chance that that was going to happen. I'm like, if you had told me this was going to be a matchup coming out of that draft pod, but it's easily told you I had a better chance of winning that draft pod than winning this matchup, right? Because he won the role. He got a second turn, Sylvan carried it in both the games he went first. Yeah. There's just no way I was going to win. He has to play at a gross level of incompetence for me to win. Like, really play badly, right. right? So I won the game I went first pretty blowout fashion, but I didn't win the roll, right? I got one-landers in both of the games that I... So game one and game three out of one-lander. The thing is, like, if you're listening, I'm like, oh, maybe you should have won. The one-landers aren't bad. And the problem is, I mean, if you listen to, to Yoel, he said you have to keep the one-landers, yeah. okay? And the other thing is, if you're in a matchup as bad as this matchup, right? We, like Our expectation to win game one of... Uh, of green devotion with them on the play is like 13%. It's incredibly bad. You need every last spell to jam them in the face. And how many, and how many, the mono red deck, like how many lands do you need to operate? Two? Two. And like if I have a Titan strength, I might be able to get their wall and fix my draw, right? Right. If that, like, if I just like naturally get my second land and I could like cast the, you know, Monastery Swift Spear on the second turn and then just like jam them also with my Titan strength. I might just steal this one. But if you, the thing is, if you donate a card, in this deck you're probably donating about three damage. Like, dude, that's the difference between winning and winning in a blowout and losing in a blowout, right? So like, the, the it's like a weird combo deck, right? Like I need three lands and an exquisite to deal with their, I actually like dealt with multiple Whisperwood Elementals of Jerry in this match, right? I think I dealt with like five Whisperwood Elementals. Which is crazy to say that out loud. That's like a combo deck, right? I need three lands and an exquisite to do that. Or I need like whatever that convoke plus lands, etc. And a stoke to do that, right? Right. And I'm still falling behind. Don't get me wrong. I'm still producing morphs. Yeah, you're really counting on putting that exquisite to the dome. Yeah, like, and 
But I mean, if you don't feel with the Whisperwood, he's definitely going to be yeah, there. Yeah. And, dude, it didn't even matter. He's like he flipped like a Whisperwood and an Atarka in game one with his Whisperwood before he did it. <laughs> it was like I wasn't going to win. So like, um, uh, but I'm, I'm sitting like, and I, did, I didn't feel bad about it. I'm yeah. just like, look, I literally came in. And I'm like, yeah, it's kind of if I rattle off X one today, I'm not even a favorite to make top eight. Okay. 7-1, I'm not a favorite to make top eight. 7 one I'll make top eight, okay? That's what I'm thinking. And I'm like, if I was going to make top eight at all, I was probably going to have to rattle off some kind of crazy seven wins. But at the point that I'm losing, I'm like, you know what? I've got two rounds to give. I have to stop thinking about this as me trying to make top eight now. I have to play every match as well as I can. And if I recenter myself and say I'm playing in the world's hardest PTQ, instead of, oh, shoot, my chances for top eight are now squelched, I'm gonna be able to retain my emotional state. That's all I did. I'm like, look, I sat down, I'm like, look, I know that he's playing. I know this is the worst matchup in the room for me. And he won the role. And I have a one land hand staring back. And I'm like, I'm not gonna win. Just play the best that I can and keep my spirits up for the rest of the day. And I won a lot after that. It was fine. I, I won two more feature matches on the day. And um, you could just, you know, play as best you can when it, when it, when it comes to you. Like, and I can but it's act- not even, this is, what I'm talking about is not even playing as best you can. It's that, that idea of No, playing- but holding your emotional state is actually part of your yes. ability to play as best you can. Like, but I, I don't think a lot of people always realize how, I mean, if you just, I mean, if you, you know, I, we just did a, I just did a piece for Daily MTG about Shahar Shanar, where, you know, he's won world championships back-to-back years, you know, like, kind of, like, crushed storybook endings year two years in a row. I mean, Fabrizio and Terry right now, right? The guy who just won London? Yeah. He is like, I mean, if you look at his trajectory, he is like brand new on this. I remember the first time like Shahar made like a top, when John, it was like a couple years ago, John Finkel goes on this run and he's like, I'm going to try to make platinum. Like he already has his Hall of Fame things. He's like, but it's like, I'm actually pretty close. I don't ever play any Grand Prix, but I figure if I play five Grand Prix this year or something like this, I'll make platinum, and then it's actually a ton of return for me. Yeah. And it only took him three Grand Prix to get the platinum, okay? So he was like, I'll, I'll probably take five or six to do it. He only take three. The first time I ever noticed Shahar's name was like, he, like, finished, I think, top 16 or top eight above John. I'm like, who's this guy? You know, his name's come up a couple of times. But Shahar still doesn't have a Pro Tour top eight, right? Right. He's talked of as an all-time great. He doesn't have a Pro Tour top eight yet. Fabrizio Terry is a better trajectory relative to Shahar than early Shahar. Like... This guy is super exciting, right? Well, Shahar has multiple GP wins very early in his career. Fabrizio has three GP wins so in six GPs. Oh, well, in six <laughs> GPs is pretty insane. He's played, he has like 15 GP top eights or something. Yeah. It was, he's like, I mean, he's like, I'm sorry, that's not true. I think he has six GP top eights with three wins in 15 lifetime GPs. Something like this. Like, sure. And I, it sounds like an exaggeration. If it sounds like an exaggeration, it's because it's absurd, right? Not to take anything away from Shahar. Yeah. You talked about already as an all-time great. You were saying something about I, I was I'm saying, just saying, like, like this guy, Fabrizio, is just like, woo! The, the thing is, I don't. I, I think you would be hard-pressed mm-hmm. to find a lineup of Hall of Famers. And not, not to take anything away from Fabrizio, yeah. but a lineup of Hall of Famers and current greats of the game to keep the same praise upon Fabrizio and Terry in terms of being... Oh, like, he certainly hasn't great. earned it yet. Right. We're, but with Shahar, like, John Finkel's like, yeah, I'll talk to you about why Shahar's really good. And Kai Budil's like, I'll talk to yeah. you about why Shahar's really good. He's like, you know, basically they're both like, yeah, this guy could do anything he wants in the game as long as he wants to play the game, basically, was their takeaway. I watched him play this match in, uh, was it Grand Prix San Diego two weeks ago? Yeah. And he has a courser in play, so he reveals a den protector. And his den protector's not even that good, right? Like, he has, like, I don't know. Like, all of a Dromoka's Command or a 
or a valorous hands in his graveyard or something, or like maybe a, a land. And he makes this weird line where he casts his Nissa and then doesn't get the land so that he could just still draw the Dead Protector. So then he like the, he draws, he plays his Nissa, doesn't get the land, plays the land out of his hand to flip the Nissa, and then picks up the Dead Protector with the Nissa. And I'm like, what a what an interesting line evaluation that this young man has just taken, right? Like, like I think that most people in that spot would do one of two things, which is either wait a turn to draw the sure. draw the Den Protector that they that they see coming, or roll the dice on how good their how good the top of their library right. is going to be and actually get the land. And the thing is, like. His valuation on the Denver, it's like, he just got back a card. It was like not that exciting. Well, he's, he's either getting a Den Protector or a land in his hand off of the Nissa, right? Yeah, but a Den Protector is better. Right, right. So it's, it, I just thought it was like really impressive because I was like, I don't know that it would have occurred to me to play the Nissa and then forego getting the land. Right, right. Playing a land out of my hand to flip the Nissa and then get the Den Protector. Because I think that's a fairly ob- oblique play. Right. And it's you may search your library. Yeah, obviously. But I'm saying you may search and yeah. you may, you can also fail yep. to find. There's two different. Yeah, no, no, no I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm just thinking, I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. I mean, he's obviously super impressive, but, right? But the thing, the thing that people said about him time and time again was just talking about his coldness. You know, which was the word Willie Adel used to describe him. He didn't mean it yeah. pejoratively at all. He was just saying that, like, you know, when Shahar's winning, he has the same sort of flat affect that he has when he's losing. And that also, as a result, like, time and time again, you had people talking about, like, these plays where Shahar just kind of, like, broke their ankles. You know, just, like, faking them out. Yeah. And part of that comes from the fact that, you know, he's never overselling anything. You know what I mean? He's just like, I'm just making my play. And I'm ne- I'm never high or low, and so. But I'm just. I, I thought I think it's very interesting that you know. You you know you you have that added pressure of I have one pro tour to make this good. I have one. You know, it's kind of like I've dreamt about this. Uh, it's a, I mean, it's a I, huge I'm, cost for me to play on the that's pro what tour. I'm, that's yes. the thing. So, yeah. which I think. You know, here's the thing. Even when I came on, which are so much younger than I was when I started playing, you know, professional yeah. level Magic. It was, it was always... Our first Pro Tour, 17 years old. It's always costly for me to play, right? Yeah. So, like, either I didn't have very much money and I was, like, time away from school. Like, every Pro Tour costs you, like, a grand, you know, something like that. Like, travel costs, stuff like that. Time away. It's it's not insignificant. Like The opportunity I, cost is pretty significant. Like, I missed a final in law school to play in a Pro Tour once. <laughs> right? Just, like, I mean, I, I just took it earlier. But, but still, like, that's the kind of thing that's, like, fairly frowned upon. Sure. Um, by by mainstream society, right? I mean, uh, now, yeah. now that you probably have a lot of teachers who played Magic twenty years ago, it's probably less frowned upon. My point is, right? <laughs> like it's always been costly to me. Like yeah. even when I was, you know, 10, 10 plus years ago, when when I was playing every weekend and trying to chase PTQs, like the cost of playing in a Grand Prix is not insignificant, yeah. right? You fly out. It costs the same as a Pro Tour, pretty yeah, much. You had wife inflation, child inflation, yeah. double child inflation. So, like, I mean, I think I I, I like. I like to chuckle and say, I probably could have been playing on the Pro Tour this whole time. I just, you know, the last Pro Tour I played, coincidentally, is just the last Pro Tour that existed before my next child was born, right? And then I just didn't have the just didn't have the focus anymore. Uh, you know, it's obviously still love Magic and still played and everything, but you can't chase tournaments every weekend when you have two kids you're juggling. Sure. So, well, I don't know, maybe you can. Well, we'll find out. Mike Sigrist. Does he have two? He just had twins. Really? Literally, literally the week after 
the Protor, Heather gave birth to, to, to twin girls. And then he's so, like in Detroit and on his way to Seattle. I mean, which is like insane. Like ins- I mean, not saying insane in February. That's his job right now, right? This is what he's doing. Is he's a he's a platinum pro and he's the player of the year and he's. I won the New York State Championship and the next weekend my wife, my wife had Clark. Right, like that was it. Like, uh, and now my kids are a little bit older. I have a little different time, so. Uh, we'll see. It, it's, it's funny. So I, I, I have the Star City Invitational coming up in a week and a half, right? That was going to be my big tournament of the year. Like, I remember, yeah. like, I focused on, like, look, I have to get a certain amount of points. I have to finish high enough in a Premier Invitational qualifier. I did all those things. And I was like, it's like, at this point, it's like maybe the fifth most important tournament I've played in the last three months. Like, it's, right. it's, it's, it's which is insane to me, right? Um, so. Now, you, you, have, you actually have to start thinking. I mean, like. I started off 7-1 last year in the Invitational. I'm, well, I'm saying Invitational, but, like, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm, like, I'm looking at my, my inbox. I've got Battle for Zendikar preview cards coming up. Like, Battle for Zendikar is going to be out soon. That means you have another Pro Tour coming up. I do. In, October. In October. So what, what's the plan What's the plan for uh, for Pro Tour Battle for Zendikar? Doing local this time, so. Um, Team NYC? Is that the name of it? That's V and Go and those yeah, guys? Yeah, so, like, I think, like, um, Go literally lives across the street from me. Yeah. So I think that we'll be able to get, like, I think just, like, real life playing and get right. some good reps is in. Is Brian Gottlieb still qualified? Brian, Brian Gottlieb is going to be on the team. Yeah. So And Andy Brian, Boswell. Brian Gottlieb is an impre- impressive, impressive player. So I, I, I'm, I, I have no doubt that, see, I don't know who the rational person on this team is. Because, like, <laughs> Boz is, like, just, he's just going to, he's going to have the best abs and aggro list. He had heavy land four hanger back walker abs and aggro at the pro tour the right. deck that did well this weekend yeah, yeah, yeah. he had that was literally the deck he played yeah so like he's like oh, i had four abs and charm this 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 and this four hanger back walker that was my deck he's like i never felt so prepared for a tournament in my life and that's literally the deck that's doing well right now right he just happened to not do well this tournament so right. z says that the sales pitch he made to me was we have Andy Boswell. You will have the best abs and aggro list. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's literally what he says to me. So I, I mean, if if you asked me like two weeks before the pro tour was taking I, I would have played abs and aggro. My personally speaking, it's my best deck in testing. You know, the Team Ultra Pro came out with the awesome red deck, and it's a very intuitive deck for me to play. So I'm playing that. But anyway, I mean, I, so I'm curious to see though uh, if I can hold up my limited capabilities without. Who's the limited expert for Team NYC? I don't think we have one. Uh, so I was just like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Just gotta get Satan drafting again. Hey, I've been a top twenty-five limited player before without any anybody else's like <laughs> ingenious help injecting in. I just like learned how to formula draft two different color combinations. Right. But you know, if I, if that were my guiding force going into Vancouver, I wouldn't have done well. Right. You right? needed like, you needed to have like a strata of cards, right? Like you just needed yeah. to know like I pick this uncommon ahead of these rares and these commons. Yeah. At this level, I pick this common over all of these uncommons and rares. And I just downloaded whatever the map was. So right. so we'll see. I mean, I'm pretty confident. So, I don't know. I'm pretty confident that I'll have a capable constructed deck. Right. And I guess I just have to try and limit it, right? Sure. Um, if I could post 5-1 record again, I'd be overjoyed. Yeah. Right, so. Uh, but, yeah, so. Uh, you know, I, I'm just, like, in the zone. I, I can't. I can't travel to 
test with the team like a week, two weeks ahead right, of right. time. It's just not realistic. For me. What, what's 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 Patrick's destination? I don't know what he's doing. Is yet. he back on Pantheon? Is I don't he know. Going to move to New York for a couple weeks? I don't know what he's doing. Like, I don't know if he's decided yet. Okay. So. Stay with Ultra Pro. I mean, also a very successful. If I were him, team. I'd say stay with I'd Ultra say Pro. Stay with Ultra Pro. Very successful. So, um, you know, they were an awesome team to me. I was super grateful. Yeah. But I think. Uh, Tons of platinums, like that's tons a, of that's Hall the of other tons, tons of pro tour champions. Yeah, but I'm but I'm saying like that idea that like you, you know, a, a team obviously wants I mean, continuity. Team NYC has plenty of like on a per capita basis. We have plat. We don't have platinums, do we? Let's go. Is he a gold? Probably gold. Goes a gold. Got like multiple Pantheon alums. Yeah. Hall of Fame or pro tour champion. So I think uh, we'll see. Uh, I've, I've, I'm already performing above, above expectation for myself, so I'm just going to see how this works. And plus, if I win the Invitational next week, I'm just going to continue to be qualified for the Pro Tour, right? Is that what happens? Invitational I don't know if that's, now I, get... I don't know if that's... Conf- I don't know if that's actually... Now? Or is that in the future? I, I think it was May. Ha- that may happen. Right in the, in the OP announcement? I think it said it may happen. I don't think that anything's been codified as far as how that works. Because... So here's the thing. I was talking to Helen in Vancouver yeah. and I think she was talking to me from the presumption that I had read the the announcement but I had not read it yet right yeah. and she was talking to me about like some sort of synergies going on so I don't know yeah no I think I think that that's the intention I don't I don't the last I had seen if I was, win one and then put a phone call or two <laughs> in I'm gonna tell you how the intention's gonna work out uh, so so like do you, do you start like we have a couple of like well, I guess really one significant battle for Zendikar card that's been revealed in uh, Oblivion. Oblivion Sower, yeah. So, is that uh, is that a card you're excited about? I think that it. W- so, these are my short-term projections. Right now, we have a standard that is extremely extreme. Okay. Finals of the Pro Tour was Lightning Fast Red deck against Lightning Fast Scissors deck, right? Then we go to a format where coming coming off of a format which was Lightning Fast Red deck versus grindingly slow blue black deck. All right, so and then we go into a format that's lightning fast, green-white deck coming up. It's overall, it's the, one of the best performing decks, you know, Kibler's deck, yeah. which is actually just like, I'm not sure it's a quote-unquote good deck, but it's real, real good if your opponents are playing with and soul artifacts and small creatures that... And life stuff like lifelink and yeah, and and attrition on the ground are valuable. Ability to elongate your life total. So we have that, and then an even an even more offensive Sphinx's tutelage deck ends up being the deck, right? So I think people typically miscategorize that deck in their imagination. Andrew Cunio's Sphinx's tutelage deck is actually the most aggro deck. It doesn't do anything but kill you. He destroyed Shota Yasuoka yeah. in two... Shota playing blue-black control yep. in two games in under 15 minutes. Like, which, like if you had to put a prediction on Andrew how that meant, against, yeah. Andrew against Shota, you know, blue-red blue, blue red mill versus blue-black control, you would not put that as a 15-minute match. So that deck is actually the most aggressive deck in the format. Do you, do you know what card Kenya killed him with? Uh... Uh, talent of the Telepath. Yeah. Got you know it. how I could guess that? Why? Because of, there's no other card that you would have asked me that question for. He uh, he actually hit Hero's Downfall for a Planeswalker yeah. and 
um, ultimate price for like, yeah, a dragon or whatever. But yeah, or maybe it was just Heroes Downfall and Heroes Downfall. I guess the ultimate price is recited out. But basically, killed Tasker and an Ugin. And sent showed it down to one card. How does he get to the point where there's a Tassiger and an Ugin in play, right? It's just sheer incompetence. Well, well, no. It's The thing is, you're milling your opponent. Yeah. So, oh, like, so that yeah, Tassiger always costs B. Yeah. So, so that's the literally the aggroist deck. It's so interesting. It's so aggro that it's bad against the red deck because it has no way to defend itself from just losing in the upkeep. Yeah. So when I, when I played against Andrew, I could have killed him a turn earlier with Exquisite Firecraft, but I didn't know what his deck configuration was, and I'm like, if I blow this Exquisite Firecraft and he counterspells me, because I didn't have Spell Mastery right. yet, right? And, and, and he counterspells me, I might just be done. But then I'm like, what's my fallback plan? I could try to kill him on upkeep with Stoke. So I'm like, and I'm doing the math, right? So I actually, he just he just fails, right? So he just goes off, and I end up with like six cards in my library on upkeep, and I I just beat him like without having to think very hard. Yeah. But it's funny. So he does this. He doesn't kill me, and he passes the turn. I just flash max with firecraft. I'm like, pretty sure I have spell mastery now. <laughs> and so I got him back from the from the limited loss. But anyway, so you have hyper aggro red deck versus hyper aggro mono. Blue, I'm sorry, uh, blue red scissors deck in the finals of the Pro Tour. And then hyper aggro uh, Sphinx's tutelage deck winning. Right. That deck literally does not do anything but kill you. There's right. no other capabilities, right? It's just like, it draws a ton of cards, but the cards that it's drawing are just more card drawing. Right. To get you to Sphinx's Tutelage or just to trigger Sphinx's Tutelage. There's nothing else. Right. Right? So that, that deck's also a hell of glass cannon. So if you're playing in decks that are like mono, Dramoka's Command, mono... Um, yeah, I, I don't see how that deck can either, really like, beat a Dramoka's Command. Or like a Den Protector, right? Like, you, <laughs> like you're just giving them the fuel, right? Yeah. So, or, you know, or Unravel the Aethers, etc. So that's real interesting. So then we get to the, the next Grand Prix where it's just mono Abzan aggro. Yeah. Right? It says like the top eight was like one green red deck, one green white deck, which is like just the Abzan aggro deck with no rhinos basically. And then Abzan aggro. And so like this is a an extremely extreme standard that we're in. Like there's not a dig through time in sight right now. Like Andrew played Treasure Cruise, right? But like, yeah. there's just not a dig through time in sight. Or four of them. I mean, you, you know what I'm yeah. trying to get at here. Yeah. But when Theros Block rotates, which is going to be Eidolon of the Great Rebel, gone. Stoke the Flames, gone. Uh, you know. Searing Blood's gone too. Searing right? Blood, gone. Uh, I mean, like. Which, by the way. You know, searing, if Searing Blood's gone, play, those Planeswalkers get just even better. But right? like, like, the fact that Searing Blood was so good at this last Pro Tour was because of Jace. But it's also like, Fleece Main Lion, gone. Ah, okay? Multiple time Pro Tour champion, Fleece Main Lion. So, Fleece Main Lion will be gone. And, like, basically, uh, because of the corset rotation, it's gonna be like, Shrapnel Blast, gone. And Soul Artifact, gone. So all these cards that are fueling the hyper-aggressive nature of standard right now are all going to rotate. That we're going to be left with a with a pool of cards that are all mono mid-range, right? They're like, what are going to be the best cards that are left in standard? Dromoka's Command. Seedrino. I don't know. Like, I mean, uh, Thunderbreak region. Like, 
I mean, if you want a red card, I mean, certainly the siege is, you know, outpost siege is still really but good. All the cards that you, but it's not, it's not an aggro card. But even like, even like the best cards that are played in aggressive decks, like Abbot of Carol Keep is a grinders card, right? Not just like, not like a mono offense card. This is like a, this is like a Snapcaster mage. Yeah. Not a, not a ball. That's what Sam called the card. Right. So, if you, if you look at it like that, like. The format gets so much slower, so much more about individual card efficiency, so much more about the fourth turn, the fifth turn, the sixth turn of the game. Also, the trump cards are gone, right? Elspeth's gonna be gone. Yeah, Elspeth being gone is huge. Stormbreath Dragon's gonna be gone. Like, Elspeth versus Stormbreath Dragon is the great enemies, right? Right. There's there's, there's, there's a fair number of, of dragons that can can slot into Stormbreath. No, there's no, no, there's no. Dude, Stormbreath Dragon does not die to Abzan Charm. Sure. Okay? Stormbreath Dragon is the main reason why there's not a dominant blue-white control deck. If, if there were no such thing as Stormbreath Dragon, blue-white control would be, like, awesome. But, like, most of the blue-white control decks can't beat a Stormbreath Dragon. So, somebody casts it, it resolves, they kill them. That's basically what happens. You know? They might get... And it, it literally just depends what order the Elspeth hits. The Elspeth hits first or second. So... Just while we're talking, this woman's collecting bottles and cans from the yeah. recycling bin that she's going to obviously take and redeem. But basically what ends up happening is she took all the bottles and cans out of the recycling bin, put them in her bag, and then threw her garbage into the recycling, into the recycling yeah, bin. I saw that. Bottles and cans only, lady. She's wearing a Samsung shirt. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So, here's the thing. When the format changes in shape and in speed by so much, we're no longer gonna have this situation where all the decks that are performing, which is basically what's going on right now, every single performing deck. What? Walk. Oh. Uh, is, uh, is hyper aggro right now. Or like metagames, like, right. like a, a little metagame. But what's gonna end up happening is the fundamental variables on standard are gonna change such that maybe control will be good again. Silmgar scorn is going to be legal. Right. Oja's high is still going to be legal. Silmgar the Drifting Death is going to be legal. Like these cards that are like very, very good cards that are not currently popular, Silmgar scorn is a messed up Magic the Gathering card. Right? That card is going to be legal and it might be dominating. Oh, yeah. We don't know. But so you, so you have this, so like, oh, all of a sudden these cards seem to get good. But look at Oblivion Sower. A. If the decks are less hyper aggro, then you have time to cast six drops, right? Right now, if your if your plan is predicated on six drops, you might be SOL. You might just be dead. Sure. Okay. But in the future, if your plan is on six drops, well, a six drop is just big. It's it's good against fighting against their four. What is that thing? A five eight? Yeah, it's a I don't know something like that. Something just gigantic. Yeah, it's a anything over a four four is just the same yeah. size. Um, it's like two languishes. Yeah, it's more it's more than a language. I think it's more it's more than a language and, and you can either fight or beat a rhino. One of the two. Yeah, yeah. Ain't matter which one. Right? So So does Butcher the Horde fundamentally have flying? Or do you have to sack to give it flying? I don't even remember anything. Butcher of the Horde? Butcher of the Horde, yeah. Is it which one's Butcher isn't Butcher of the Horde? No, thank you. Isn't Butcher of the Horde the the one that Red, White, Black, one, five, four. It has potentially lifelink haste. Is it game? Oh. Is it a flying to start or no? I think it has flying to start, yeah. I don't remember. 
Yeah, I think it, it is flying to Because stuff. we can't look this up, yeah, it we'll has never know. Stuff. I forgot about that. I forgot all about Mardu cards in general. I think Butcher the Horde is like on a fundamental basis, one of the best cards in standard that nobody plays. Yeah. I mean it was it was huge for like week one of yeah. But like look at all the of, of, look uh, at all cons the block. awesome cards that people are like not gonna play anymore. Nyx Fleece Ring, Corsair of Crufix, Sylvan Carriad. Wow. Like I mean green green has been like the dominant color. Twelve of six was it like something twelve of sixteen decks were green or something? And yeah. It was most fifteen of sixteen decks were green, twelve of twelve of sixteen were white in yeah. London, something like this. Yeah, yeah. So anywho Oblivion Sower is so interesting because as cards like Solengar Scorn get good, you would think that a six drop would be bad, but it's actually pretty good against a six six drop deck. Because even if they counter the Oblivion Sower, you still get the card advantage element of, a, right. of Oblivion Sower. Right, because that, that triggers upon being cast. Yeah. That's pretty So unless you have like a and, and you have to and you have to assume that there's going to be more Eldrazi that have yeah. that templating, right? So I think that probably we're going to have this, like, some sort of situation where you have, like, a four-fold ramp order instead of, like, a three-fold ramp order. Like, right now, it's just, like, land L for, like, land Rattleclaw Mystic slash Corsair or something. Like, that's your fundamental. That's, like, your first one or two steps. And then you play, like, one big acceleration thing, which is either just, like, dropping, like, two Sylvan Carriers that is on the ground or like you already had an Accelerator you play a second one or you play like a Frontier Siege and then you play your bomb right you play like whether it's a Tarka Ugin whatever it is you're just like you have like this kind of kind of three step development process I think now we're going to go to a four step development process where it's just like similar to the green decks but then they have like their Oblivion Sower Zone Frontier Siege might suddenly be good Frontier Siege is never going to be that good as long as it's concurrently in print with Dromokas Command. But I go turn three Frontier Siege, right? Yeah. Maybe do something else with my mana, second main phase. But the next turn, I can play Oblivion Sower. But you could you could have done that some other way. Sure, I guess so. But like, the there's there's some other way to go turn four Oblivion Sower right now. Like, what if you put like face down Rattleclaw on this? Sure. I think having colorless creatures is actually going to be pretty good, whether they're morphs or artifact tokens or whatever. I think there's probably going to be a lot of stuff going on with colorless creatures, which would be signaled somewhat by the presence of the Devoid mechanic. I think that like that there are multiple cards that had the Devoid mechanic spoiled by Blake Rasmussen earlier this week. Yeah. Which would lead me to believe that, like, hey, maybe colorless creatures are going to be a thing. Which includes face-down creatures, sure. whether they're morphs, includes, megamorphs, or mana. It also includes Oblivion Sower. Yeah, right? absolutely. <laughs> and all of his bigger friends that might be coming. Yeah, so anyway, so I think you get to this zone where you're like, you have like your short to medium term acceleration, and then your Oblivion Sower zone, they stop your Oblivion Sower probably, and then your big thing, right? Because, because we already know the last time the Eldrazi rose that we were talking about hardcasting 10s, 11s, and 15s in standard. Yeah. And that, like, there was heavy competition between casting 10s, 11s, and 15s, at least in casting 6s. Whether those 6s were Primeval Titans or Sovereign of, of Lossalar. Well, that, well, well, the Primeval Titans, your multi-stage yeah, ramp exactly. style building, right? So Primeval Titan is the Oblivion Sower of that era, right? right? So, that, so I think 
we're gonna end up in in what I'm currently imagining as. Well, I've, I've come to dread Oblivion Cellar even more now. Now that I've just made the connection to again just being primeval type. Yeah, it's primeval type, and then a mono red deck can cast though, or mono white deck. I think like. I think white decks, white blue decks with the Bolivian Star might be very interesting. I mean, who knows what... So here, I think the, the only thing that I, I think would be affecting my my ability to have an informed prediction right now is we've already seen cards that are devoid that are black-red. So who knows what the color incentives are going to be to actually move your mana base in combination with the devoid mechanic. Those seem less like incentives and more like just... Delineators. Well, look, I have to cast this card. That means I need black and red land in my deck, right? right? I mean, not that I'd be like, not that that card is like the the be all and end all, right? But it's not like you have ultimate freedom to cast your colorless deck. Sure. Because you don't. No, no, no. If you're going to play certain. The thing is, like, all these devoid cards, face down cards, artifact tokens, etc., they play real well with Ugin the Spirit Dragon. And, you know, don't count out Majoring Network. I think Majoring Network is going to be a player. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, but it's interesting. Uh, Voyaging Seder and Kiora's Follower are both going to rotate, right? Yes. So. So, really, is Rattleclaw the only Rattleclaw, Rattleclaw Elvish Mystic? is going to. I don't think there's Elvish Mystic in Magic Origins, is there? Leaf Gilder. Oh, no, it's Leaf Gilder. Nobody's going to play Leaf and Gilder. Root Trapper, but they, it's a little limited Nobody's. to what you can do with that. I, I'm. I think I think Rattleclaw Mystic is going to be the man. Yeah. I bet I better put an in, an order into face-to-face games for face-to-face games. Although for uh, for for Rattleclaw Mystic. Mystic gets a little worse also without without Elvish Mystic, right? Like playing it on turn three. As opposed to Dude, playing it on turn two. I don't know. What, I don't know what to tell you, man. I guess you, just you play gotta face pl- up on turn. You play it face up on turn. You, he's your Sylvan Carry Adonai. You got to do what you got to do. There ain't no other cards to play. Right. Right. Like, there's just not. I mean, unless like, unless there's like some kind of Eldrazi like, like I can imagine a card being like Eldrazi Dragon Fodder, right? It's just like G1 make two O1 tokens, sacrifice these for any color like. That could, like, that's probably a not unbalanced card, right? Sure. Basically, like a green dragon fodder that's like thematically. Right. I mean, when you make that card, I would like royalties. <laughs> Mark Rosewater. But yeah, like I think there, unless there's a card like Eldrazi dragon fodder or something. I mean, they might bring back Lotus Cobra, but like Lotus Cobra is like pretty poopy if they don't bring back. Oh wait, there's other fetches are legal right now, right? Uh, but flooded strand is legal right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so they don't have to. I, I, I think I don't think they're gonna reprint enemy color fetch lands until they, the last they, they set of the cycle. Not, they said they're not putting them in this set. Yeah, but I, so I think it's pretty likely that they print them in the last set of the cycle, which is like, because from a nostalgia standpoint, from just let's be honest, from an excitement slash card sales standpoint, they're gonna want to take advantage of cards like Arid Mesa. They're just gonna want to do that. But I don't think they want to have a year of. 10 fetch lands setting up landfall triggers. But if they have three months of 10 fetch lands setting up landfall triggers, that's probably pretty exciting. That's exciting, not, but if you're like, well, I guess we're playing landfall linear for the next two years, like, like that's not an exciting prospect. But if it's like, all right, we're just gonna release them in the last set of the cycle, they're gonna be legal only for a three month window until the next the next rotation, then it's very exciting to play landfall linear, right? Sure. <laughs> but if, you, if it's just gonna be like, 
no, we're gonna have arid mesas for the next two years, then it's gonna, it's gonna be hard to play other magic. I mean, like you don't even need to know what cards are legal. Arid Mesa and Flooded Strand together are probably better than any other cards you could play, <laughs> as evidenced by the legacy and modern formats. So, um, but I, I did, I kind of like, uh, cornered is the wrong word, but I just kind of like gave Sam Stoddard the business when we were in, uh, in uh, Vancouver. Vancouver, I'm like, how long until you bring temples back? And he's like, what are you talking about, Michael? I'm like, well, temples are about to rotate. But I noticed that you cannot walk through a room without running into a four-syllable uh, ejaculation of the word karametra if it's like a pump spell. But like, like, God forbid that I could creature enchant something without invoking the holy name of Heliod. But man, Heliod's temple is just Temple of Enlightenment. And Asiak's temple is really just Temple of... <laughs> and he's just like, I don't know what you mean, Mike. You're, I'm like, that just must be a coincidence if there's no Temple of Karametra slash Temple of Heliod. So, you know, like whatever right, right. two-color gods there are, right? I'm like, it's obvious. Temple of the It's just obvious that, like, the temples are made to be evergreen. And you're going to loop them. I would guess every two years. You don't want them every single standard, but, like, every two years. And it's just hella obvious. They're like, everyone loves them. Wait, do you remember when everyone was like, ah, oh, these are the most least exciting lands ever? I do not remember that. I was in love with temples from the minute I saw them. Like, yeah, you give me a chance to play with my library? Yeah. I played black-white temples in my mono-red deck. I don't know if you remember. Like, I guess it was yeah. red-white aggro yeah. deck. Uh, I mean, they're so good. They're like, you just defeat your opponent because you didn't draw a land on turn 10. I want to I bookend our conversation. We started talking about some stuff that I was watching. Yeah. I just want to ask you about stuff coming up, new shows. New shows. Fear the Walking Dead. So, Fear the Walking Dead, I have not watched two, even two episodes of regular The Walking oh, okay. Dead. okay. Which is weird, so I've read every issue of the comic book. Okay. So I'm going to watch it. I so Fear, Fear the Walking Dead takes place in L.A. Yeah. Immediately after the start of the zombie outbreak. So it's so actually going to un unveil the mystery? or it, It's going to be about the spread of the zombie outbreak uh, and is going to really tackle, like, the zombies are going to be not like these rotted, decomposed corpses yet. It'll be like, oh, my God, there's my wife you know, who died coming at me. Like, you're going to still, people are going to still have some recognition of the characters and, you know, and people Robert also... Robert Kirkman sign off on this? this is Kirkman, Kirkman is, like, leading the charge on it. Oh, really? Yeah. He's not just collecting checks? Well, I mean, he is also just collecting checks. I mean, uh, Robert Kirkman, man, that guy carved himself a hell of a niche yeah. in the comic industry. He got thanked in the Ant-Man movie. I didn't. I guess he wrote Ant-Man for a while. Really? Yeah. I mean, the guy, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to be upset with a guy like this who basically is like, I just want to make invincible. Like, think about all the aborted superhero line stuff that Image has done over the years. Of the original Image creators, the only stuff that's still running is Savage Dragon, God bless him. <laughs> God bless him, spawned somehow. Yep. And, which it used to be such a huge circulating comic, I don't know if they're doing it yeah. anymore. I mean, Greg Capullo is just still doing Spawn, he just does it with Scott Snyder and they call it Batman now. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, 10, 15 years in, Robert Kirkman comes in on this push with like a bunch of comics that don't exist anymore. Like, I don't even remember Fire Breather and Firebirds and I mean, even stuff that was like really good, 
like Jay Faribert did, Noble Causes through the early to oh, middle yeah. 2000s. And he, the guy just basically slugged it out with Invincible, did like one crossover with Spider-Man during his entire tenure, and, and it's like hit gold with The Walking Dead. You know The Walking Dead has had months where it's outsold any quote-unquote mainstream comic yeah. book. And, and, it's, and, and the books and trades, and yeah, it's un unbelievable. But yeah, so the, sh the, show, the show looks, I mean, the, the, all the trailers for it. Yeah. Look super excited, but I would, and you don't. I guess you don't have to have watched Walking Dead. Maybe it's also a nice jumping on point. It's like zombie ultimate. So it's like I, ultimate zombie. Kath and I were talking about like, should we just try to binge the entire Walking Dead? And then like, and she's like, you know what? We try to watch this show together like three different times. We never got past. It. And it's not we like we don't like it. It's just like you always have something it's, else to do. Yeah, but here's the thing, it's super uneven. Like, I heard it's like Dead. really good and really not good. It, there are there are years where it's terrible. It is it has been terrific for the last two years. Yeah. And the first year is kind of exciting just to see it, but like those middle couple of years are, are pretty hard to watch. But it's like a lot of it's just spectacle, right? That's the thing. That's the sense that I get. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of zombie carnage. A lot of zombography. Zombography. Yeah. I like that word. Um, so another show coming up very very soon, Bastard Executioner. So that's uh that's so uh, Catherine. So actually we should talk about this. Don't take this if people at home. You don't you don't get a vote. That's actually slotted for so. True Detective season two is over, and then the other shows that Catherine's writing about are gonna erode. She's that's actually on her slotting on her list for for recaps for fall season. Okay. Bastard Executioner. I don't remember what the other two are. So you just keep saying probably. Probably you'll I'll remember as as the first. So so Alex Allman, yeah. longtime friend of the podcast, sent me a link to some new AMC show. Yeah, I've never heard of it before. It's coming up in November, out of the Badlands. I don't know. I'm it's shaking like, my head. You know, it's like it. some post-apocalyptic show. Guys with like samurai swords, and like people doing battle in like a post-apocalyptic urban landscape with samurai swords and martial arts, and like it looks awesome. It looks gorgeous. No idea. Oh. I literally did not hear about it before today. I, I don't know. So. so to echo the lady who just put her trash bag in the recycling thing, I put my plastic cup in there, which is like, they'll take a plastic bottle. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah fine, I'm sure right? it's fine. Okay. All right, so I, I don't know. I, I have no opinion. That just sounds to me like trying to exploit the popularity okay. of Mad Max. Yeah, it, it, it looks a little, I mean, it obviously... It has to have been. I think it's more like a Game of Thronesy. Would you? Would you? It rate, looked like somewhere between Game of Thrones and the 100 on the CW. Would you rate Fury Road as one of the as one of the short lists for one of the greatest action movies of all time? Yes. Which is basically how it's been described. Yes. Really? Yes. Why? Uh, it was exhilarating. It was refreshing. It was intelligent. It was gorgeous. It was visually groundbreaking. See, the, 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 none of those. I am not saying that I was explicitly. There goes a rat. Not saying that I would explicitly disagree with any of the things that you said. But none you of did those make are, a stinky-nosed face. None of those are the, the only because none of those are the words that I would use to describe it. First of all, I super celebrate the fact that they had like a great female protagonist. Oh, I, lots of rats. I love how they dealt with both the. Uh, the kind of the, the supermodel bride characters, yeah, and Charlie Theron's character. I, I I'm, I'm not, I'm not anti-feminist balloting this at all or anything. I just get the feeling that a lot of the aplomb that's put on this is like disproportionately. We love Charlie Theron in this. We love Furiosa's character. So we're just going to say a bunch of stuff 
about how great this is. We're really just extensions of this. That's this that's one all, aspect. That's all bonus to me. Really, in liking this movie, I what I love about this movie yeah. is the world building. How like they've just built this insane, deep, incredibly intricately built world. Because this world is so far afield of the Road Warrior at this point. I don't care about this. No, no, I'm, I'm, okay. I'm just making an observation, yeah, right? Yeah, But, so they built this, like, all these, like, crazy, like, sacks and cults and religion yeah, and, like, and, like, all these mechanical things about how things work and they don't explain any of it. The costume is crazy. They just treat you like an intelligent human who can figure things out from context clues. Yeah. Um, action movies are terrible in general now because you can't understand what's going on. Right? The camera zooms around. It just ignores the fact that you are, you know, it's like, yeah, you'll just figure out what's happening. This movie, they did, the director had a thing where he had crosshairs. Yeah. On, he's like, I want whatever the focus of the action is in every scene, I want it to be on the crosshairs in the center of the screen. If you watch the movie, there's a couple of people who did, um, you know, sort of superimpose the crosshairs, like yeah. on the fight scene between Max and Furiosa, imposed the crosshairs there, and yep. you watch every single impact moment of that happens in the crosshairs. And it, it's so visually crystal clear, the storytelling is unparalleled. There is nothing else in the action genre that's approached this level of storytelling in Western cinema. Ever? I, I don't, and action plot-wise, ever. I mean, my, maybe this is a preference thing. I far prefer Kill Bill to this movie. I mean, kill. Well, I guess I don't know. Kill, kill Bill One or Kill Bill Two or it's one film. It's not. Kill Bill One's not great. Kill Bill Two. Kill Bill awesome. Two is my favorite yeah. action movie, but yeah. sure. I mean, like, but I think they're comparable. I mean, I think they're they're. I mean, kill Bill Two is such a work of genius. I, I That's think they I think they're in the same ballpark. Except for, the only reason that you're holding back is you hate the analysis of Batman against Superman. Well, it's not. That's if you just take that out, like. Which I actually don't even nest. I don't know if I agree yeah, with I anymore. Don't, but, I, don't, I don't know. But anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. Yeah. I, I actually love a lot of the, but, the but, narrative but, around but it. But if you're going to find, if you're going to go, oh, well, here's this one movie that holds up to it. That's like one movie. Which was 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, I mean, you, there, there's not something else to compare to this. So, But anyway, so this, this show, I think the show owes more maybe to Game of Thrones than, than Mad Max. So what, do you, what about Scream Queens? Are you looking forward to that one? Uh, no, not not so much. You're gonna give it a try? I'll give it a try. I mean, it, it's. I like. Is that the heart? Is that Scream? No, it's like. Oh, no, this is the new one. I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about the Scream thing for MTV. No. The Scream Queens is the new one from the guys who do um, American Horror Story. Well, they also do Glee, which is right. the thing. It's like the same, yeah. same writer director yeah, 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 does Glee, yeah, yeah. Yes, American Horror yes, Story. I am and looking and forward. I am looking and forward. And it's Glee Michelle is like one of the leads. I am looking forward to Scream. So. That's one where, uh, what about, uh, I, I want to say the blacklist, it's not, it's the, Jamie Alexander who plays Lady Sif is the tattooed woman. Blind Spot. Yeah, that so one. So here's the thing about Blind Spot. I think, so there's, there's, a, there's a line in the commercial of a Blind Spot where someone's like, all of our tattoos were done in one day, and it's a map, and then this, the FBI director's like, why would someone do this? Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's kind of an unfortunate line to have in your, because <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, right? But... The showrunner for the show is Greg Berlanti. Arrow, Flash. So I'm really curious, like, is this, is he gonna be like, okay, well I've done all these like, 
comic book franchise shows now, here's my chance to like step out and create my own kind of insane. I mean, I love Arrow. Yeah. So you don't I mean, watch the Flash. Though. I I'm waiting for it to come up on Netflix or whatever, so I can watch it all. So here's a problem, right? Flash is better than Arrow. You've told me this repeatedly. I find that difficult to believe. I don't. I mean, so I know this is going to sound weird, but I don't really buy into the goofy aspect of comic books. That's not the thing. I think of comic books as a serious storytelling genre. They're, 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 they are a serious storytelling genre. Even the Silver Age reminiscent stuff that Alan Moore does, like the goofiness of it, I take with a serious eye. But you can. But the thing about comics is, comic books are not a genre. Like you can do all sorts oh, of you're, storytelling. Oh, you're they're a medium. They're a medium. All right, so and then you can tell goofy superhero stories. You can tell pornographic superhero stories. You can tell violent superhero. You can do whatever you want. You don't even have to have superheroes in your comics. That's an amazing observation. I've never heard somebody say that comic books are not a genre. Everyone thinks of comic books as a genre. They're not. It's a medium. You're yes, right. But absolutely. I, I, I can't take any credit for it. That's Scott McCloud. I mean, I mean, obviously. I've read that book, which is which is actually. Other people have echoed that, but it's it's important to remember because, you know, people talk about comic book movies. I'm like, well, Ghost World's a comic book movie. You know, I always try to point this out. Stardust is a comic book movie. Right. Right. I mean, I I think that those distinctions are going to blur quite a bit. And I think... A History of Violence is a comic book movie. Yeah. Yeah. But Ant-Man's a superhero. And that's the, I loved Ant Man. I, I, I really, I really loved Ant Man. It was weird. It felt like it could have been set in the Arrowverse. Like it was Why? small. It had, a, it has smallness to it. Like I felt like it could have been a two-hour TV special. Yeah. Like high, very high budget, great actors, etc. But did uh, you see Fantastic Four? I have. Here's the thing about Fantastic Four. First of all, historically, whatever Marvel superhero comics. Fantastic Four is closest to my heart. Yeah. I like, and if you ask me which member of the Fantastic Four I like the best, you probably can't even guess which one I like the best. You can like Reed Richards the best. That's what everyone would guess, knowing me. I actually like Ben Grimm the best. Okay. I love Ben Grimm. Like, when I was a kid, every single time... Marvel 2-in-1? No, I wasn't wasn't old enough for that. So, I started seriously reading... Sorry, too good to buy old comics. You only have so many resources when you're, like, 11 or whatever, right? I I didn't live near a comic book store. So I bought a lot of my comics like Walden books. Sure. Right? So I bought whatever they had from Marvel that was out that month, yeah. right? So I didn't discover the comic book store until I could drive. That's why I love Shazam. Yeah? Because when I would first buy comics as a kid, I would buy the giant treasury editions of uh, the Captain Marvel comics. Right, let me just come back to this. It's actually yeah. an awesome thing to say. So I hated it every single time Like one of my friends who collected the Hulk would show me a comic where the Hulk beat the thing. Because in my mind, the thing, like, the thing was strong. Like, he, he, this is a strong guy. And he's not dumb. Why is he listening to this dumb guy? You know, I, I couldn't... I'm like, he's strong. Like, he's he's equal to Reed Richards. Like, he's... And that that's... Yeah, I, I saw him as, like, he's equal counterpoint to Reed Richards. He's, firmly, a, he's a science adventurer. It's firmly established that Hulk would destroy the thing. Yeah, it's not even close. <laughs> like, this is no... I mean, growing up, this was a huge debate. But now it's firmly established that... There was no debate. Like... <laughs> Uh, in the Ultimate Universe, I think, I think that the thing knocks out the Hulk, and it's like the greatest moment of his life, right? But I mean, like, I don't know. How do you write the Hulk? Captain America has knocked out the Hulk, rendered the Hulk unconscious with a punch. Okay, like, it's not even clear if he's superhuman. I mean, I guess he's superhuman relative, like, but like, he's substantially weaker than Spider-Man. 
Like he's maybe one third or one tenth of Spider-Man's super strength. Spider-Man's not knocking out the I Hulk. Remember, I remember, according to the Marvel Handbook, Captain America was six times an Olympic athlete. I think he, I think he can like. And Spider-Man was ten times an Olympic no, athlete. Spider-Man can lift I'm, I'm ten more. tons on optimal conditions. His okay. lift ability is 10 tons in optimal So He could lift 10 tons above his head. 20,000 pounds. Under optimal conditions. Depending on when you read the Marvel Handbook, either Steve Rogers is a quote, optimal human condition, which no, is- No, 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 he was six times, he was six times an Olympic athlete. Which is still like 500 pounds or something, right? It's yeah. like, yeah, it, yeah. it's like- This is, yeah. A, this, thou a thousand pounds is more than this, a human can lift, right? This is the nerdier. Yeah of the Top 8 Magic podcast, by the way. But I think, like, as we've had power creep in comic books, he's probably rated in the one to three ton range right sure. now, which is still, like, a fraction of Spider-Man's strength. The fact that he, the, I, not the fact, the idea that he can have knocked out the Hulk is ludicrous. The Hulk can punch the ground and shatter a planet. Like, that's that's the... If he wants to. Which he has done yeah. on, on occasion, right? Literally, which is, like, I'm not sure if that's actually feasible. Can you punch the ground strong enough to shatter a planet? He is the world breaker. So, but anyway, do you think this is the nerdiest comic book? Thing? Um, I know, I know some some comic book nerd nerddom. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, I I don't like Captain America. I, I read a, a top. Who are these like the top fifty comic book heroes? They like rated Captain America like third or something. I love Captain America. I love rate him third. I, I love Cap. I have him. I have him very high. Batman one, or Superman one. I I accept Superman, the Superman Superman's one. Superman's not in my. Superman's not even close to my top. You gotta, you gotta take a global look, not just like. It's I don't like list. Superman either. It's my list. But I still have him rated two. I don't have him two. I have him. I've. I would I, probably go Batman, Spider-Man. So I have Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman. And there's a long span before we get to another DC hero after the Trinity. Uh, <laughs> but the, I think the Trinity are special. But I think Spider-Man cracks the Trinity. You know, I, I, I think that's fair, right? I guess so. I have, I have Cap pretty high. Cap, Cap's certainly in my top five. I love Cap. I, here's the thing that I like about Cap. Captain America is just... It, it's the same thing everyone wants to love about Superman. Yeah? That doesn't work to me. Because Superman's too strong? Because he's just a god. Yeah. Right? Like, the idea is that Captain America, he's just a good... Steve Rogers is just a good guy. He wants to do the right thing. You know? He's never been... Uh, could have easily been blinded by political ideologies, and he's always managed to. You know, so, as long as I was reading. Them, so I Mark Millar said the, the most challenging thing. So when he was writing the Ultimates, and he would, uh, and he was writing the Ultimates is like the Ultimates is basically the basis of the Captain America movie yeah, yeah. and the Avengers movie, yeah. right? So he said the hardest thing about writing the Ultimates was if you look like statistically how how uh, military people act, right? So it's like in the last election, like 70% of military, like more than like some overwhelming percentage of people who were in the military voted Republican. Yeah. It was like, that's fine. That's their informed decision from their background. But on a personal basis, how do you write a guy who's supposed to be, who falls into this demographically, not only falls into this demographically, this is the archetype for how these people will have been acting for the last 60 years, who's not an asshole. That's actually the thing that he says, like, he has to be compassionate, right? right? Right, like, you know, he has to care about people on an individual basis. Right. He goes to the basis and like, he's like, obviously this is a possible thing because he actually did a great job of writing. He's like, he's incredibly challenging. But look at somebody who's like, who, if you put him but in the voting booth, but this is what I he would have voted this one one way, but in his, in his, in how he got his powerful actions, 
He actually has to act like a humanitarian. Well, what, I, what I love about Captain America is that as a character, just his character is someone who has obviously been on that side of, yeah. you know, soldiers doing the things soldiers need to do, etc. And but has also been on the side of like I'm a normal guy who has to deal with the reality. Grew up in like, Brooklyn. Grew up in Brooklyn, and so he's he's always straddled that. He's been of two worlds. And as a result, he is pretty. Uh, it's pretty much in the middle. He's like, purple. You know, to use the, the political metaphor. You know, when they talk about purple states, red states, yeah. blue states. You know, Captain America has always been this very purple character to me. Yeah, I think he's a bleeding heart, personally. I, I can't buy him as like, like, kind of this hard-nosed. He's like the opposite of the ends justify the means comic book character. Sure. He would just never approve of the things that like the more, let's say, like, strategic or statistically-minded superheroes would do, like, stuff that Batman would calculate to do or Reed Richards or Iron Man. Like, Captain America's just on the other side of that equation every oh, single time. I like time. that about him. No, but I'm just saying, like, he's not purple. He's not. No. He's freaking true blue. Like, I get it. Like, I can say Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne, like, he acts completely consistently whether or not he's in costume. Right? He's just like, I, I, every action that Bruce Wayne takes is some combination of obfuscation and fear. Whether he's Bruce Wayne or whether he's Batman, he's just like I do all my deals. So from people have been saying Donald Trump is yeah. the Batman, or I do all my deals from like tricking you somehow, right? Because I'm I have so many chess moves ahead. Right. I know my opponent so well. He does this exact same thing in both cases. But like Steve Rogers is not like that. So actually, I wanted to get back to the awesome thing you said about Shazam. This whole notion of the Avengers All Star Team, Mark Millar invented, and that's why today. Comics is uh, comics and like all the Marvel properties are so centered around the Avengers. They had a summit, like maybe I want to say it's more than ten years ago now, when Marvel was not winning. Right, they were not in the winning situation they're in right now. Comics were booming, okay, right? Like I would say, like circa 2005. And Mark Millar makes this observation at a summit with Joe Quesada, and he goes, "You know why I bought the Justice League when I was a kid?" It's like why? And he says like. I only had so much pocket money. But if I bought this one comic, I got Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and Flash. Instead of having to buy all that. If I would have needed like the equivalent of like 15 bucks to buy all those comics right now. But if I bought Justice League, I would get all of them. Joe Quesada looks at him, looks at Brian Michael Bendis, and he goes, I don't care which one of you writes it. You're, uh, we're, we're the, the Avengers from now on is the Avengers All-Star team, right? No more Cersei, no more Gilgamesh. Like, whatever, think about, the, when I grew up, you know who the Avengers team was when, when I started buying comics, seriously? Gilgamesh, Cersei, US Agent, Crystal from the Inhumans. Moon Dragon? Might have been, like, and then like, I mean like, Mockingbird, like, Wonder Man. These were my Avengers. They were like, we bro, so we got the Great Lakes Avengers. Mr. Immortal, Dinosaur, Big Bertha. Okay? Those were literally the Avengers when I when I was growing up, right? It's just like, wait, um and Thor had no superpowers for some reason for a while. But they're like, oh he's like he's unworthy but he can carry the hammer, but it's just a hammer now. He's just like a blonde guy. <laughs> With a plumbing just, he just tool, does, he just does roofing work. <laughs> like that, like, this is like that was the Avengers, right? It's like I think like the we had like Doctor Druid. Remember Doctor Druid? I do remember Doctor Druid. Fat and still in a still in a leotard, right? 
Like those, that was the freaking Avengers. So Bendis, so it literally says to Mark Marmix, I don't care which of you two writes it, from now on, the Avengers is the Avengers All-Star team. And so they had, they had the breakout thing and it was like, Bendis wrote the first arc and it was like Captain America, Iron Man, Luke Cage. He's like, we're promoting Luke Cage. Captain America, Iron Man, Luke Cage, Daredevil, Spider-Man was their team. And like, and they just expanded from there. And like, they, I, I, to his credit, Bendis made Luke Cage like the coolest freaking dude uh, who could like literally stand next to Captain America and Iron Man and the Sentry and Hawkeye and like hold his own as a cool character. But that's why we have the Avengers we have now. Like they've never flagged from that, that principle. Like the coolest characters we have are the Avengers from now on. So here's the, the funny thing is, None of that resonates with me at all. Really? I don't read. I don't read any current superhero comics. Well, you resonate with the idea of like you could I, buy a comic book that all oh, the yeah, cool I, characters. Oh yeah, absolutely. Made. But that's. But I love. I mean, for me, you know, it's funny. I was watching, you know, watching Ant Man, and I'm just getting excited about, you know, Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne adventuring around together with the, you know, with the Avengers. I mean, I'm sorry, I freaking forgot Wolverine. Right? So they put Wolverine Spider-Man on the Avengers. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's just not... But they took, completely took over comics by sure. doing this. I, I don't care. No? I don't care. Do comics I mean, I get it. Really? I think it's a great idea, right? You know? I guess this was, like, on the wrong side of you. Like, when you came into Marvel, it was, like, Joe Quesada and, and those guys were just doing interesting things, like... Like I don't mean Sal, I don't care for Sal, that. No, no, like Sal Valuto and Christopher Priest were doing Black Panther, which is still considered this... In, obviously didn't sell very well. Right. But, like, from an interestingness, world-building perspective, is still considered one of the greats. They're like, oh, well, let's do that. Let's experiment with, like, comedy writers like Kevin Smith doing Daredevil, right? Right. And you came in and you got, you know, B-sides okay. And then comics changed when Hush came out, right? No. Hush com ruined comics, no. right? No? I don't, I don't even know what Hush is. But I can tell you what, what changed the way comics. Spider-Man movie. Spider-Man movie. So, well, so Spider-Man movie opened the door, but from a, from the perspective of comics themselves, uh, Brian Vaughn explained this to me. He's just like he's, he's like, wrong. When they did Hush, he's, he's wrong. It was the Spider-Man movie. I was there. I was at the Marvel premiere for the Spider-Man movie, and people walked out the door, and everything changed. So, Literally, the moment the credits rolled for that movie... Well, that was back in 2000. They were still doing interesting stuff Everything changed. Everything changed so, at that point. Hush was a Batman arc, which was coming off the tail end of Brian Azzarello and, and Eduardo Risso doing Batman, which you think is like, wow, what a great Batman team. Well, what if you had Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee doing Batman instead for a 12-issue arc? I don't think Jeff Loeb's a good writer, so I'm not as interested. Doesn't matter. They brought Jim <laughs> Lee back to mainstream comics. Sure. So what happened when Hush? I had would rather I would rather see Risso than Lee every day. Same. <laughs> and I would much rather read Azarello Azarello than, than, than also than same. And by the way, their Broken City arc was not very good. Yeah. Just, but anyway, so Hush but, comes on. Do you, so what happened when Hush came on was it in the comic book direct market completely transformed comics, which was that before that they were like doing the the trend before that was nostalgia. Remember, there was like Battle of the Planets got seven hundred thousand oh, yeah. orders. Okay, yeah. it was all nostalgia. Those comics. Things so do well. Not, but like that was the thing. They're like nostalgia comics yeah. is where is that, right? So like independent, independent um, publishers doing nostalgia comics was like 
that was where all the all the driving into the comic book stores was. When Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee came on, a single thing happened, which was that all the lapsed comic book all the lapsed comic book readers bought the same comic. So like they all came, I I freaking bought Hush. I have eleven of the twelve issues. I didn't, it was not very good. But like they came in and they're just like, oh, we're all buying Hush. So like, it's not that the net sales of comics went up. They all just bought the same comic. Sure. So then when that happened, Marvel's reaction was like, oh, wow, something just happened in diff- that's different in comics now. People are in stores, but they're not in stores doing this thing where they're speculating on comics, which they were doing before, and they're not doing things that are chasing I, I, I a think, good story. I think, it's a bigger, I think it's a more macro, it's a bigger thing than, like, you're just... What happened was you had... An infinite amount of money injected into but the you, system. But you also had all these creators who were doing Marvel and DC comics, yeah. mostly Marvel comics, Jim Lee, Mark Silvestri... Uh, you know Todd McFarlane Rob Liefeld etc who all had left yeah like all the top tier talent had vacated right they'd all gone and formed their own company they formed Image and the fact that Jim Lee came back and was doing a mainstream book was a big deal and it triggered it signaled the idea that you know the the, the major talent didn't that Marvel would A and DC, for that matter, would actually pony up the amount of money needed to keep those guys happy. Uh, but also... Is there an amount of the, money that, that makes those guys happy? Like, all the stories I've read from the original Image creators is, like, Liefeld made $24 million when he was 16 years old or something, and he still hasn't spent it all. Right? Like... Sure. And he just does a Hawkman comic, so I'm like, does it sell so happy. You're, you're so talking well. about happy as a... As I just meant, like, yes, I will work for you. Happy. All right. I didn't mean, like, I am complete as a human happy. So, I meant just, yeah, I'll do this book. Happy. So, like, I get the, this, uh, the, I mean, just from reading the industry stuff, I get the feeling this is what happened with Jim Lee. In 1999, 2000 or whatever, he sells Wildstorm to DC, which pisses the hell out of Alan Moore, right? So Alan Moore's moved all of his assets yeah, yeah. To, to Jim Lee's Wildstorm comics. And Jim Lee is actually killing DC with the authority and stuff, right? So the authority is outselling the Justice League. And DC is like, we want to get number one market share from Marvel. The way that we can get number one market share from Marvel is buying Wildstorm, which outsells our freaking books right now, right? And they just, like, do the long, slow murder of Wildstorm, which is still not... They're still murdering Wildstorm at, at some level, right? Just bastardizing all their properties and their characters, which, to be fair, are knockoffs of Marvel and DC characters right. for the most part. Uh, no matter how well they sell, no matter how well they did. But then, like, Jim Lee gets paid millions of dollars to do this, and then he gets, like, what did he have, like, Creative Director West or something was his title? Yeah. They have to keep paying him, like, 300 grand a year or something. And I think at some point they were like, Jim, you need to add some value. Go draw some Batman comics. He's like, all right, I like drawing comics, too. (laughs) Like, making all these decisions is fine, but, you know, get me Scott Williams on the phone. Scott, we need to lay some inks. <laughs> you know, and I think that that's probably what happened, which was also great for them, right? That comic sold a bazillion yeah. copies. But it was, it was, that was really like, well, I think that was the first time you had like one of the marquee people come back to doing a mainstream title. I mean, I can't even think. I mean, Jim's done a bunch since then, right? So he did, I'm the goddamn Batman with Frank Miller, right? But like, yeah, Sylvester did an X-Men run with Grant Morrison. I, it was probably actually before Hush, I think, but Sylvester's not as big as Jim. No, no. I mean, Lee, Lee and McFarlane were like, like if you got McFarlane to come back and do a run of Spider-Man, like, the world would explode. I mean, like, 
would it? I mean, like, I look at the old movie. Maybe, maybe was not now. Maybe that's... that good. No. Like, I don't get it. I was utterly in love with Jim Lee in 1990. I, I, did, I thought he was the Mick, pinnacle Mick, of an Mick, artist in 1990. So, it's funny, because McFarlane was around forever. McFarlane used to do a book for DC called Infinity Inc. I remember this book. And it's like, like the, the Children of the Justice Society on Earth 2, right? Right. And... He, he was like that was like it's his like first new clo or something. That was like right? his first major his first yeah. major Are you sure that Liefeld didn't do that book? I will bet you all the money in my pocket. I thought you were gonna bet me dinners. I already owe you infinite dinners. Yes. So it's <laughs> there's, no, there's no skin in the game for you. Um, <laughs> sure, I'll take that bet. <laughs> uh no. So yeah, it was it was, it was, it was McFarlane yeah. because he was he was an up and coming star at DC, but like he would do like it would be like Rosenthorne would be in a comic and like the is Rosenthorne the crazy wife of Green Lantern, Alan Scott? Remember. I don't even remember now. But like, and then the panels with Rosenthorne in them would be like wrapped with roses and thorns, and he would just—he was just always very baroque. Like he would always just do all this, like oh, uh, you know, unnecessary. I was gonna say he draws like Mark Buckingham, but the joke is Mark Buckingham. Nobody even knows how he draws, right? One day Mark Buckingham draws like draws like Alan Davis, the next day he draws like uh, Chris Bacalo, so. Yeah, yeah. McFarlane, McFarlane just always had this like incredibly busy, yeah. you know, uh, almost, guy like, didn't, almost like graffiti influence style. The guy never had a line that he would say no to. Yeah. The line always made it onto the page. There was, there was a, there's a famous story, uh, I don't even know if I, where, where like McFarlane's at some retailers conference yeah. and he's showing off the first issue of Spawn. Yeah. And uh, one of the big things that you see a lot is like I, one of the things I always associate with Image Comics is the breakdown of real traditional storytelling, like breakdown of actual panels and gutters and like all the visual mechanics that help you actually understand, understand the, 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 the the sequence of the art. But the early Image Comics had no story, so it didn't yeah. matter. Well, well, here's the funny thing is so, and then also you know those guys were those guys were mercenaries, right? So like they were selling their original artwork, and they discovered that you know what doesn't really sell. Traditional comic pages. You know what really sells? Splash pages. Yeah. So, like, so McFarlane shows off the art for the first issue of Spawn. Yeah. And he's like, and it's just like splash page after splash page and, like, you know, big image. And he's like, and look, you can put the pages in any order and the story still makes sense. <laughs> so I, I caught up to Spawn a little bit late, like, maybe, like, around issue five, six. And I didn't realize that those issues were being written by... Neil Gaiman, Dave Sim, and Alan Moore. I'm like, this is very good. And like Brian Vaughn's like, you know that Alan Moore wrote that comic? And I'm like, who's Alan Moore? And he's like, he wrote Watchmen. And I'm like, what's that? Yeah. Because like, I'm just like a Marvel zombie. I mean, I had missed that. Like, uh, Watchmen was like two years before I started reading comics. So I was like, I don't know what that is. But this is a very good comic. And he's like, yeah, Alan Moore wrote it. And he's, I'm like, how about this one? He's like, Neil Gaiman wrote that. I'm like, who's that? He's like, Sandman. And I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't read the DC comics. I don't, I don't know about those. I tried to read it, but the part I didn't like the art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah all, I mean, well, you could read, right? You could read Animal Man. Get your Grant Morrison fix. It's so the art. I can't. I, I love the art. I love the art on Animal Man. Chaz Truog? No. 
No, 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 no. Is that that's not, is that true? The early that's... Animal Man with is with Graham Morrison is Chaz Truog, and, and then he, he replaced by Steve Dillon, right? Yes, the Steve Dillon stuff is different, but the Chaz Truog stuff is widely regarded to be the worst art ever professionally published on such a great book. It's it's so hard to read. Look, it's I, like love, art I love, I so love, I love Animal Man. I love that run of Animal Man. I think it's. I, regardless of art, doesn't matter. Just read the Invisibles. You read the Invisibles? Uh, I didn't love the Invisibles. Did you read the whole thing? I didn't. It breaks down at some point. Like it's, I didn't. Just, I didn't care for it. I mean, it becomes like, Morrison again. I, I, I knew a lot of like, I, like I, a lot of the influences were pretty transparent to me on it. No, I don't know. I mean, it's pretty obvious why he sued sued Warner Brothers though. Like over the Matrix. Like, like he was pretty up in arms about the Matrix yeah. stealing from the Invisibles. It's just like it literally steals like idea after idea from the Invisibles. <laughs> I think I think they both read the same books, but that's that's another story. I think they both read a lot of Robert Anton Wilson and Cosmic Trigger. And okay, <laughs> I, I, you know a lot of Gnostic philosophy. I don't think it's necessarily stealing. I think they probably both like like the same source material. Okay, uh, but it's possible. Uh, yeah, you know, seemed pretty Al- transparent to me when I read this. Read Alan Moore's Swamp Thing and then read. Neil Gaiman saying, man, you're pretty much set, right? In terms of... Like, getting yourself caught up to speed on, like, all the comics you love now. I mean, what's crazy about it is that Alan Moore's Swamp Thing was so well-drawn, because the comics in that era were not very well-drawn in general. Or there were so few really good artists back then. I... I mean... Okay, after George Perez and and John Byrne, and maybe I'll give you a Romita, go next. Well, who's next? Walt Simonson. All right. You got it. All right, fine. Keep going. That's four artists. Brian Boland. Does not count. He drew one freaking comic book end-to-end. Camelot 3000. Yes. And one graphic novel. And and a million Judge Dreads. Yeah, well, I I don't know about British comics. (laughs) And I can't imagine they were very well written. They were awesome. Okay, well, I completely forgot that he drew. (laughs) But, I mean, from America, he wrote, look, Camelot 3000 and Kelly Mike Zach. I mean, Al Williamson, who's still doing comics at that point. Uh, uh, I'm talking about going to the comic book store, going to the uh, bookstore for me, and picking up a monthly. These guys are not appearing in the comic books, right? They, they, like, they were. They were. There were great artists. They were not. Like Nasa Kelly was not producing comics anymore at this point, right? He cut off four years before I started reading comics. John Byrne was the pinnacle of an artist when I started, right? John Byrne, George Perez, those guys I'm going to give you, right? I mean, those aren't even on my list of, like, I loved them at the time. I don't think they were, I don't think they're where my artistic appreciation is now. I mean, I'm going to be much more Simonson, Chaikin. Uh, I mean, I think Chaikin was just not writing, I'm sorry, writing or drawing comics that I could have bought, right? Like, sure, probably I wasn't going to buy porn. I was 11 years old. American Flag wasn't porn. Black Kiss. Black Kiss was porn. <laughs> no, Black Kiss was straight I mean, up. American porn. Flag had plenty of tits in it, dude. I mean, yeah. like, yeah, I, I, Amer- American Flag might be the best comic from that era. It's I mean, so for good. what years are you talking about the best comic? I mean, it's, it's like, up against it's, Swamp Thing. Don't forget. I'll put it right up against Swamp Thing. We put it up against Watchmen. No, that's not a realistic thing to do. Put it up against Miracle Man. Yeah, I put, it, I put it in the same pantheon as those. Right? Like I have it on my bookshelf, collected next to Miracle Man, Swamp Thing, you know, a bunch of things you don't ever, you'll never read. You bought my wife a Love and Rockets, right? Did I? Yeah. What did I buy her? Uh, 
music for mechanics. Oh. It's on my shelf. Did she I have it? never cracked it, neither is she. Oh, really? She'll love it. Yeah? Yeah, she'll love it. I don't remember what the context was, but we were in the comic book store at the same time, and you're like, just read this, it will ruin everything that Mike's ever said to you. Or something like that. Wait, I, was, it, wasn't, was music for mechanics? It wasn't Palomar? Music for mechanics, I'm sure. I'm going to buy her Palomar. All right. She's not like an avid comic book fan. She doesn't have to be this. Here's the thing. Palomar is better than just about every comic ever made, including all the things that you hold in such high esteem. They're not even in the same ballpark as Palomar. Palomar is like superheroes in Palomar. No, yeah, I think, and then I'm gonna have something to call them. (laughs) Palomar and Heartbreak Soup and like all the early, early Gilbert Hernandez Lava Rocket stuff is like on a. Just on another literary plane than what most comics are. Look, man, I read an interview with Los Bros Hernandez, and they couldn't get work at Marvel and DC, and that's why they made their own stupid comic book line. It's true. It's true. Um, do you know read any contemporary comics? Not, not. Re- I mean, I read a couple things. I'm comics is so good right now. I mean, it's been so good for like. <laughs> it's weird. Like comics stopped being good. Watch like too much TV. Like around like nine. I, I would say like. Somewhere after 95, com- comics, like, stunk. I still kept buying them, right? But there was, like, uh, no, no good so comics. To, to be fair, like, I, just read, I just read all four volumes of Saga yeah. in about three minutes. Yeah. And Saga, Saga's fantastic. You know that his plan was to just end it after the first arc, right? Because, like, he's just like, if it doesn't sell super well, I'm just going to kill them all on the spaceport. Yeah. And then, but apparently it outsells everything put together, so. It's so good. We should, we should get moving. The 1970s are creeping out of the out of the weeds right. here. <laughs> so, um, I don't know if we do. We, do you think we still have listeners? I don't know. <laughs> I stopped listening about 45 <laughs> minutes ago. The people love the comic book and TV section. So, um, what, so number one show, Mo- show that you are most looking forward. Did I turn off the recorder? That would be the worst if we lost everything. Yep. Oh no, I didn't turn it off. What number one show you are most looking forward to for the upcoming TV station? Number one. Fall season. I'm thinking. I'm trying to decide if it's. Uh, it's probably Westworld. I don't know if that's this which, season. Which show? HBO is doing Westworld. I don't know what that is. It's uh, it's based on a Michael Crichton novel. It was turned into a night movie in the 1970s with Yul Brenner. But they're doing uh, like doing a new TV show for HBO with it. Yeah. It looks awesome. Uh, I think. Not doesn't have to be new. What about returning show? Uh, returning show? I'm excited to be watching The Good Wife, like, on an as-it-airs basis. Uh, that's like my, I mean, Good Wife Scandal, Good Wife, I think I'm gonna go with Arrow. Uh, I'm curious to see where they go with Arrow. I'm also really excited about Legends of Tomorrow. I, this, this show could be like a hyper-flop. Yeah. So I, I, I just watched the trailer for Supergirl. Yeah? I think it looks terrible. Oh, I cried. You cried because it looked bad? No, I cried because I was so moved. What? It looks freaking. Oh, it's a stack of Sex and the City cliches. It looks so awful. I will watch every episode. Yeah, I don't think it's going to do well. So, I think it's 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 on my short list to be canceled. Like, I want to do this, actually. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about this on a future episode. I want to do a Deadpool. Yeah. Where you and I, like, fantasy draft new TV shows. Yeah. But we're trying to draft, like the most quickly canceled. So, like if your show succeeds, if it gets renewed, that's like a zero, that's a zero. So here's the thing about Legends of Tomorrow. 
And I, don't know, did, I don't know if Legends of Tomorrow is this year or ten year. Why did they? Why did they cast Mister uh, Amelia Pond as Rip Hunter, but he's just John Constantine? Because they literally just made him into John Constantine, right? Uh, no, well, you didn't hear. If they're just going to put John Constantine on Arrow, right? Right. This doesn't make any sense. Right? They're like, I'm Rip Hunter. Blah blah blah. He's freaking dressed as John Constantine. Rip Hunter is no, in he's Doctor Who. He's supposed to be in a space suit if he's Rip Hunter. But he's Doctor Who. They just did him as Doctor Who. They did. I mean, if it's a DC comic, he's freaking John Constantine. No, Rip Hunter is Doctor Who. No, he's not. Rip Hunter is in a spacesuit in the comic book. That's why. I mean, the costumes have changed considerably in other other instances here. And White Canary, by the way, is Lady Shiva, doing work for the Birds of Prey. No, she's Electra. <laughs> she's Electra. Yeah, Electra lives again. Oh, Reincarnated Electra is white. Canary. Was all was just it's White Canary. Oh no, no, you mean conceptually White Canary? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, white Canary in the comics is just like. Oh, is that a real character in the comics? So, basically, like, I forget. I you literally don't read these. All right, so, first of all, you should read Birds of Prey. Here's a comic recommendation of the week. You should read Birds of Prey by Gail Simone. During, so, like, remember I said, like, comics stunk for, like, whatever, like, yeah. 10 years or something? A shining star of this era is actually Birds of Prey by Gail Simone. It was the best bat book of its era. It's, like... Gail Simone randomly gets Birds of Prey from, I guess, Chuck Dixon is the originator of yeah, it. Yeah. It was like Chuck Dixon and Adam Hughes, like some completely busted combo. People really like Chuck Dixon action comics. I've never, personally, I've never been that big of a Chuck Dixon fan. But, so she basically gets Birds of Prey, and the core characters are best friends, Barbara Gordon and, uh, and Dinah Lance, right? Yeah. Or Laurel Lance, for yeah. those of you who watch Arrow, right? And then, like, they accumulate this... Uh, ensemble cast of Huntress is like the main additional character that they that they add on. And they just like whatever, they're Gotham based science do-gooders. Or, you know, whatever. They're yeah. like basically like I don't know. Mission Impossible. Yeah, they're like with, basically with female superheroes. Girl Mission Impossible. Yeah. And like all the jokes are because like Gasmos is this like ardently feminist person in real life who also writes like late, you know, Red Sonia and comics like this. And so, like, half the jokes are just about how all of them have exposed midriffs on their costumes. They're like, why do you do that? Because I do 200 sit-ups a day. Like, oh, well, if you do 200 sit-ups, I guess I would want people to see it, too. You know, like, because, like, it, it's weird to, like, reconcile, like, oh, I'm, te- I'm I'm writing this tender story about friendship between women plus, like, with a super, like, feminist bent, like, girl power, blah, blah, blah. And they're, like, wearing these ridiculous costumes, right? If she got to pick, they would have, like, way more utilitarian costumes like they do on the TV show, for example, sure. right? So, um, so for whatever, so I guess she like, she writes Black Canary like she's the biggest martial arts badass, right? She doesn't even use her canary cry. She's just like kicking everybody's butt. And then like, and like, so they get into adventure where it's like Lady Shiva against Black Canary. And Lady Shiva's like, you know, I'm pretty much the number one martial artist in the world. Fight me, I'm pretty much gonna kill you, right? And, uh, you know, Lady Shiva, she trained Batman, right? She trained Damian yeah. Wayne, right? And, uh, and like, Black Canary's basically like, still gonna fight you, gotta try. She's like, also, by the way, I got a list of the top 10 martial artists in the world. So I know how good everybody is, right? And like, so she fights her, and like Lady Shiva wins, but she's like, it's like number seven. <laughs> she makes it, it's like, I'm moving somebody off the list, number seven. And so like a big deal of it is just like, who's on Lady Shiva's list? And then like, look, there's just like this, like at the end of Gail Simone's run, like she gets like all these awesome, 
DC martial artists are like help the help the birds out, just like like Dick Grayson and Richard Dragon and like all these like people who like you don't necessarily know about. And like Lady Shiva comes help, like and all this. So anyway, at some point, like Lady Shiva loses a bet with Black Canary, and so Lady Shiva has to join the Birds of Prey and be a do-gooder, and like Black Canary for whatever reason has to like join the League of Assassins and be an assassin while like so she has to do Lady Shiva's job and like Lady Shiva has to do Black Canary's job and it's like hijinks are constantly occurring she's just like Shiva you can't kill that person she's like I'm an assassin she's like no you're Black Canary right now yeah so Lady Shiva is Roger Gould's daughter on the show no Lady Shiva is is the greatest martial artist in the DC universe but she like works for Ra's al Ghul right so like uh, Malcolm Merlin is like the greatest archer. Ladies, they're all like League yeah, of yeah, Assassin members, right? But, but I'm saying, but they didn't turn her into Nissa for the show. No, Nissa's actually one of his daughters. Oh, okay. He has a second daughter okay. who's, who's oh. like, I think she like usurps Talia head at some point. But like, it's comic continuity is weird. As far as I know, I think Talia is actually the head of the League of Assassins right now. Like, she beat Bruce and like, like she's like, I beat Bruce. You never did, Dad. You're an idiot. You always underestimated me. I went to Harvard, like something like that, you know. But then Mike drops and takes over the, the league. But yeah, so Lady Shiva, I think she's Cassandra Kane's mother. Uh, I'm not sure. You know Cassandra Kane? She's Black Bat. She used to be Batgirl. She's the second Batgirl after. Oh, sure. The okay. one with like uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the all black costume. I, I think she's Cassandra Kane's mother. I'm not 100% sure. Like I said, comics stunk for a long time, so I didn't, I didn't read a lot of mainstream comics. Uh, but now they're awesome. That's the thing. Yeah, image comics are awesome. I think I made a comment to you at one point. It was just like, all the good comics are astronauts in trouble. They don't make any comics really anymore. <laughs> but that was just because like no one else was making good comics. All the comics stunk. Like I read like I still read all my superhero comics, but yeah. they all stunk. But now comics are good and the superhero comics are awesome. And the not superhero comics that Image makes are freaking super awesome and I don't know. Magic the Gathering. Fetchland. <laughs> Fetchland! Face-to-face games. <laughs> Manitaprived.com! Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm a little out of tune today. So. All right, that's it. Bye. Bye.